our season finale. Tonight, we review Avengers Endgame. Uh, before our review, I thought it would be all the more fitting to hear Tony Stark's voiceover uh, from the end of the movie. You'll hear part of it now and the rest as we transition into the second part of this finale. Everybody wants a happy ending, right? But it doesn't always roll that way. Maybe this time. I'm hoping if you play this back, it's in celebration. I hope families are reunited. I hope you get it back and something like a normal version of the planet has been restored. If there ever was such a thing. God, what a world. Universe, now. If you told me 10 years ago that we weren't alone, let alone, you know, to this extent, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised, but come on, who knew? epic forces of darkness and light that have come into play. And for better or worse, that's the reality Morgan's going to have to find a way to grow up in. This is the Superhero Pantheon. On this podcast, we take one superhero film a week and decide whether it should be in the Pantheon, the Pile of Shame, or somewhere in between. This episode will be divided into two parts. In part one, we will review Avengers Endgame. In part two, we will be welcoming special guests Ben Phillips and Matt Waters to do one final ranking of the MCU, answer some burning questions, and put a bow on volume two of the Superhero Pantheon. My name is Jerome Cusan. You can find me on Twitter at Jerome C. 1985. You can find additional episodes of this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast apps through the real world. We strongly encourage you to leave a four or five star review so as to help people discover this show and the great work that the folks at the real world are doing. If you would like to interact with us, send feedback, or you can do so in two ways. First, send an email to superheropantheon at gmail.com. Second, find us on Twitter at Hero Pantheon. My host for this week and every week will be Brian Brain. He can be found on Twitter at Brian DeBrain. Brian, this is our season finale as we are putting a bow, as I mentioned earlier, on this season. And a year ago, when Avengers Endgame came out, I, I told myself that this was going to be uh, the season two finale, that regardless of any of the other movies that we review over the course of 2019 and into 2020, I knew that this was going to be our finale because it literally does not get any end gamier than Avengers Endgame. Yeah, the timing on everything, uh, I guess everything just comes together for this podcast. What can I say, man? Uh I mean, we're literally going to record it one year after the movie came out, uh, the final recording for season two of uh, the Hero Pantheon. So just crazy times and the way that, you know, this, made, this movie made me feel, you know, uh, a year ago compared to now, it's, it's quite the difference, especially with the pandemic going on. And I don't know, just some things kind of reflecting and like just the way that the Avengers at the beginning of this movie kind of all feel and they're all going through these stages of grief. It feels like I'm, I don't know, it feels like all my different friends are going through those different phases right now, so it's kind of surreal to watch this movie again, especially now in the time that we're living in, 
Um, and to think that we're not even at that point where we can even consider an endgame type solution to the problem. But still, by the end of this three-hour journey, once again, sitting through this movie for the fourth or fifth time, I forget. But I don't know. It, the movie still makes me feel hopeful, especially now. I mean, when when he picks up the hammer, man, I stood up again and I just cheered. You know, at nine in the morning when I was watching this movie, I stood up and cheered. So there you go. Um, this movie still gives me hope. And uh, it, it changed a lot, man. And it was such a great moment to be there in the theater live. And I hope you guys go back and look at those clips that went viral a couple weeks ago. Uh, just seeing those moments again with the live crowd reaction. Totally worth it, man. Kind of brought some tears to my eyes because living those moments again with the people and just remembering that moment that night in the theater. I know, Jerome, you have probably had some of the same emotions I was going through with a, a lively crowd that was just really into it and really just on top of everything. So it made all those full circle moments mean even more. So it was quite the journey, you know, 20-something film or 18-something movies leading us towards that moment in time. It was just perfect, I think, that one moment in time where we all came together and saw the Avengers, you know, finally take back what was taken from them and uh, save the world again. So uh, it's quite the journey, uh, both, you know, it's kind of like a metaphor with this podcast, too. So uh, what can I say, man? Well, volume 2 is coming to an end, but uh, the MC will still keep on chugging. That's for sure. And there is, of course, going to be a volume 3 of this podcast at some point, and we will get to other movies when we feel it is appropriate to do so. Uh, but for right now, let's get to some some notes about Avengers Endgame, a movie that has become uh, the highest grossing movie of all time, both domestic and worldwide, specifically not domestically, but worldwide. It is the number one movie of all time, making just over $2.7 billion. Of course, this movie was shot back-to-back with Avengers Infinity War in just a period of 200 days, so spent a number of months on this. There are lots of notes about Robert Downey Jr., of course, uh, the main person behind the MCU as far as being one of the first people cast, being the first Avenger cast. He is the only actor who got to read the entire script. I can't imagine being an actor and not being allowed to read the script. It's just, it's absolutely crazy to me. Robert Downey Jr. once told Anthony and Joe Russo about how one of his children said, I love you 3,000 to him. And the directors liked that phrase so much that they decided to include it in the film. And of course, it has become a meme. It has become one of the most memorable aspects of this entire movie. And with this film, Robert Downey Jr. surpassed Hugh Jackman's record for most appearances in film as the same superhero, of course, as he plays Tony Stark through three Iron Man movies, four Vest movies, a Captain America, a Spider-Man, and The Incredible Hulk. No, I didn't forget The Incredible Hulk. Uh, it took Robert Downey Jr. 11 years to do this, and it took Hugh Jackman 17. So that is uh, pretty remarkable, some pretty remarkable things. And Robert Downey Jr., his most famous scene, perhaps, in this movie, when he once again reiterated that he was Iron Man, that was one of the last things that was shot just months before the movie came out. And that's always been a fascinating note to me, because apparently they had a number of other ideas for what he might possibly say, including the possibility of dropping an F-bomb. But... There really was no more fitting way to end it than say, I am Iron Man. Yeah, of course not. And the little note that we may have mentioned two years ago on the Iron Man podcast initially when we reviewed the first movie, the line that he says, I am Iron Man, an ad-lib line apparently. To, and that's the legend that they're, they're telling today. And it's incredible. An ad-lib line comes full circle for his last line when he's alive. You know what I mean? Just, Just... 
I guess they just did it right that way. I mean, I guess they tried different lines, but there, I don't see any other line he would have said because in that moment, you know, I know we're kind of jumping ahead, but in that moment, like, I, I, I can already picture what he's going to say because as soon as Thanos says, I am invincible, I was like, oh, he's going to say, I am Iron Man and fucking snap him out of existence. And he did it, man. It was such a cathartic moment. You know, especially all that Tony was been going through, and then that five-year period, the loss, the stuff with Peter, all that stuff just built up to that one moment, and he made it worth it, man. And it just it was that callback to the original moment where everything just opens up the door in the MCU, or that kind of actually opened the door to the MCU, so to speak. So uh, I love that, and everything was just perfect in that one moment. And I'm glad that you used that line. Eventually, Lily and Paul Rudd were filming Ant-Man and the Wasp the same time that this film was going on, and this also was being shot before even Captain Marvel was around the same time, so I'm sure there was uh, some complicated continuity issues. Uh, Somebody else who quote-unquote appears in this movie is Natalie Portman. Uh, Her appearance was created with leftover footage from Thor The Dark World. She also did some voiceover for a scene when she is talking in the distance. She also did attend the film's premiere. And Brian, as we now know, Natalie Portman will be making her return to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the next Thor movie. And I can tell you that I'm very excited for that. I didn't think there was a chance in hell that Natalie Portman would ever return after what happened with Petty Jenkins on Thor The Dark World. But I'm really glad that not only is she going to be returning, uh, but she is going to get to be Thor. That's the power of Taika Waititi, man. Who would have thunk it? Uh, I mean, credit to him, man, because not only did he do the Thor thing and bring the character back to, like, or not bring it back, but just bring it to this next level of prominence, you know what I mean? And making it a relevant name again. I mean, we were almost thinking, like, there was going to be no more Thor movies after the Infinity War saga. And here we are with Thor 4, all because of Taika, because he knows what he's doing with the character. And if he knows what he's doing with Jane Foster, then then great, because that character felt like it needed, I don't know, something. Like, it kind of just was pushed to the wayside after Thor 2. You know, she was pushed to the wayside, and you felt like Natalie Portman is such a name and such a good, great actress that they could have done more with her. And that was the frustration, probably... You know what I mean? So that tied in with the whole, you know, Taika's like this big name director now, especially after the Oscar win for Best Adapted Screenplay. I think the ball's rolling, and I think that those two are going to click very well. Something tells me that Thor 4 is going to be this totally different movie that we're expecting it to be, and I think she's going to come out of it as like this big, not a big star. I mean, she's already a big star, but like even bigger than she was. I don't know what it is, but I think he's got something cooked up his sleeve for her in that character. So I'm excited, and um, I like that we didn't see what actually happens with the with the ether when Rocket has to take it out, because God knows what Rocket had to do to take it out of her, right? Because I can only imagine, I was thinking like, what the hell are they going to do? But they kind of left it up to your imagination. So that's some of the old school, you know, movie tricks that they still left in the movie. So I was glad they did that and left it to your your imagination because I kind of have an idea what he did, but I don't want to say it out loud. Yeah, the creep factor possibilities are definitely high. Uh, As you probably remember, Brian, Avengers Endgame became the the biggest pre-sale title ever on both Fandango and Adam Ticket Sites causing them to crash minutes after the sales were announced. It accomplished this feat in only six hours. Theaters across the globe had so many sold-out showtimes on the opening weekend that Cinemark, Regal, and AMC theaters chose to add new overnight screenings so that they would be working around the clock to accommodate extra shows. 
And of course, Avengers Endgame would make $2.8 billion. I had a really difficult time just getting tickets for Avengers Endgame. And I knew that Rise of Skywalker was kind of screwed because they were not, I was not having near the problems getting Rise of Skywalker tickets like I was with Avengers Endgame. And that, that was probably a sign that this movie was going to take off, Brian, because there are two, there were two AM screenings, there were three AM screenings. It is incredible how many sold out screenings there were. And I remember even going to a couple of the screenings that I went to that were that were sold out and even going to an IMAX screening at 11 o'clock in the morning on that Friday. And it was three quarters full. I mean, that just shows you how popular uh, this movie was. Yeah, I was kind of sweating it because at the time I didn't get the day off officially because I specifically requested that Thursday off, right? And I was willing to like, gamble maybe I can go to Friday but once I got got it off it was like a week before and I was sweating it man because like everything was filled up and I just had to sacrifice that you know even though I was going with my friends we ended up in like three different theaters because it was just so crazy of getting tickets together at the same time and you know assigned seating nowadays so yeah it was crazy to get tickets and what I saw on e- when I saw on eBay like that people were selling their tickets for the east coast you know especially it was mainly east coast people selling their tickets for the midnight shows and I was just like wow we're reselling movie tickets in 2019 for an Avengers movie. You know what I mean? It's like people couldn't wait, you know, a week. You know what I mean? Just if it was sold out and they couldn't wait that week or a couple days or whatever and they were willing to shell the extra $100. And I was just shocked and I was like, damn, man, don't y'all have movie pass or something? And, you know, I was just like, man, this this is really something. And I didn't, I didn't expect it to be this big because Infinity War was huge. But this somehow was even bigger, and I don't know if it was because Infinity War was on Netflix, and then movies that are on Netflix, that are on Netflix just spread like crazy, like the Tiger King thing that just went spread viral, so there's something to that, maybe, I don't know, I just felt like there was more people on board with Endgame than there even were for Infinity War, and I I don't know, it was weird, it felt like there was even more of a casual audience that didn't even watch a lot of the MCU movies in these theaters, and still, like, the, the crowd was just buzzing that whole weekend. Uh, probably even the next weekend, you know what I mean? The crowd was still pretty much like a smart mark crowd, quote-unquote. So, yeah, just, you know, totally worth it. And I still think it's the biggest domestic ever. I can't remember the exact total, but the biggest domestic weekend ever still... Um, I mean, I don't think anyone can top it. I think it was like 250. Yeah, for the opening weekend, it absolutely was. But the the number one domestic movie is The Force Awakens. And I cannot imagine that any movie is ever going to top The Force Awakens. $936 million, which is just unbelievable. And Brian, in response to you and your friends having to divide this up, I guess uh, you did whatever it takes to uh, to get into the theater to see this movie, right? Whatever it takes. So, some of the other notes. So, I, I thought this is a really interesting one, Brian. So, this is the this is a there's a very distinct possibility that Avengers Endgame is the final on-screen appearance of Robert Redford. This was the first time in his 59-year career that Redford returned to play a character for the second time. And you think about the movies that he has done over the years, the all the presents and sneakers Jeremiah Johnson, you think of all of the legendary roles that he's been in, and this is the first time that he came back in a quote-unquote sequel. And so that that's a pretty remarkable note. And just knowing that his last appearance in a movie is probably going to be in one of the biggest movies ever, I mean, it's it's kind of fitting, I guess, in a way, right? 
Yeah, and it's weird, too, because I, I could have sworn he did a sequel with Paul Newman in one of those buddy movies, but I guess I just confused them with others, the other Paul Newman buddy movies, you know what I mean? I could have sworn there was, like, a sequel to Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid or something like that, or I don't know. Maybe... There was a sequel to both Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as well as The Sting, but neither Paul Newman or Robert Redford were in either one of those sequels. Okay, that's where I was confused, because I knew there was also a sequel to The Sting. I've never seen The Sting, but I knew that's... I like to call him a, 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 a Robert Redford, a Paul Newman joint, you know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, I, I knew there was a sequel to The Sting, but I just, I figured he was in it. But yeah, now that you say that, it's quite the accomplishment, because I mean, God, you look at all the all the other legendary actors, they usually have recurring roles, like Clint Eastwood played Dirty Harry like seven times or something, so that's crazy. Much of the dialogue in the debate scene about time travel came from conversations with real quantum scientists. And the one thing that I will say, Brian, is the the time travel aspect of this movie. I know time travel can break your brain when you really think about it, as we've dis- we can discuss with movies like Terminator and Back to the Future, and they even make references to Back to the Future and Star Trek and things like that. But it seems like the way that they organized this, I think they did an incredibly good job of not creating as many conundrums. Some of them still do exist. Some of the conundrums and some of the plot holes do still exist. But this still feels relatively clean. And we did get the the great conversation. There was no whiteboard or chalkboard involved, but we did get Bruce Banner explaining time travel multiple times in this movie, and that made me very happy. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, he made a great joke. It's either everything is a joke or nothing is a joke when it comes to time travel, right? And that was like, I didn't really pick up on what he was saying until I saw it again recently, and I was like, God, that is so true. And then you have that scene where they're talking about the, the, the structure of time travel, and then I kept thinking, like, God, this is why my theory on The Flash never was, like, proven. Because, like, I always thought in The Flash series that once Eobard Dawn, uh, or his his great, or I don't know, I guess it would be his grandson in season one kills himself, there should be no Eobard Dawn because you can't alter your past because you, you know, blah, 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 blah. It gets confusing, right? But I guess it's true, man. You just make it too convoluted and they get, you get lost in it, but they kind of brushed over it. Um, but again, I don't know. We'll get to this in the story aspect, but there's some really strange holes that I'm trying to figure out. But hey, I mean, listen, it, that's leading us to the Loki show. So God knows what they're going to do with this whole alternate timeline that was created in 2012. And not to mention the other alternate timeline in 2014, now that there's no Thanos. But that's another conundrum for later. But uh, yeah, time travel's confusing people. So it's got to be all a joke. Either all of it is or none of it is, as uh, you so eloquently put. The opening Hawkeye scene was originally conceived as part of the finale of Avengers Infinity War. However, because Hawkeye had not been in that movie, the Russo brothers moved the scene to the beginning of this movie. And I think it serves as a perfect prologue to the rest of the movie. I can't imagine it really fitting in with Infinity War because I think Infinity War was so massive. And I think individualizing Hawkeye's moment and not really showing any of the other dustings in, in in Endgame, I thought it worked so, so much better, putting it as the opening scene of this movie. Yeah, because, like, I don't know, it would have been even more of a heartbreak to see it at the end, especially uh, at the end of Infinity War and everyone's going away in, in the snap. If you see his family go away, I think it would have just made it so much harder to bear. You know what I mean? I think that's just ripping out the audience's heartstrings too much. 
I mean, it was bad enough we saw Spider-Man have that moment, we faded away, but that, I mean, God, I mean, still, like, I had a tear in my eye when I saw that the first time, because I was just, you can see Clint, like, you could literally see his face, and you could, like, feel his heart breaking, you know what I mean, because he's confused, his loved ones are gone, and it sets him in this rage, it, it's a great opening, totally. Definitely. So the Russo brothers originally had the idea of a 2014 Thanos massacre, as he would have killed all the Avengers in another timeline. He would have decapitated Captain America, brought his decapitated head to the original timeline to taunt the Avengers. However, this thought was considered too violent and was ultimately dropped, and I could not agree more. I think we know that Thanos is a threat, even though it is a different version of this character. That does not mean that it alleviates my villain score, but we did not need to see a decapitated version of Captain America, unless they made the joke, well, that's America's head, too. Jesus, Jerome, you went there. Um, listen, I, I when I heard about that and I read about that, I was just like, thank God. A, no more, let, let, let's just eliminate these alternate timelines because then they're just going to confuse people even more. Let's look, let's get that out of the way. Two, yeah, man, a decapitate. I mean, we already saw Thanos' head get chopped off at the beginning, but, I mean, come on, man. We can't have uh, Chris Evans' pretty face chopped up like that. Come on. No, we certainly couldn't. And just like Avengers Infinity War, the North American release was moved up from May 3rd to April 26, 2019, after the first trailer and title released on December the 7th, 2018. There was much speculation that Marvel Studios did this and Infinity War so that there would not be any major plot leaks from the countries that released the film earlier. And I think that was a really, really smart idea. And we may never have to deal with this again, Brian, because we may never go to the... We we may never go to the movie theater again. Well, don't let AMC theaters hear you say that because they're going to start freaking out, selling their stock. I think they're already freaking out, Brian. That's what I mean. Don't freak them out even more. I, I do like my reclining chairs, so... I like my reclining chairs as much as the next guy, but I think it's going to be a long, long time before we see that. Um, and, of course, Avengers Infinity War had pro- has probably one of the most infamous endings in the history of the superhero genre. And the way that they, of course, had to write themselves out of it is time travel. They thought it was the stupidest idea, which is probably what led to the line of either it's all a joke or none of it is. Uh, Of course, with the Ant-Man films and the idea of the Quantum Zone, that opened up the possibility of a time machine of time travel. And this won them over as time travel allowed for multiple scenes, highlighting the emotion of loss, reunion, and redemption. And Brian, perhaps most importantly, we got to redeem Thor The Dark World and make it that a better movie. And that's really what matters. Yeah, I think it was Kevin Smith on his initial review when he was just like, I can't believe they redeemed Thor The Dark World, man. And you know what I did? I went home and watched Thor The Dark World, man. And I was like, wow, they really they really suckered me and got him. But uh, I didn't rewatch the whole movie, but I went back and watched some clips. And I was like, yeah, man, it made me appreciate it even more now. Crazy as that sounds, but I don't know. Sometimes you can have a revisionist history when it comes to fiction like this. And retcon things and little and a little bit and uh, make it you know not so bad when they fridge Frigga, and you know Rene Russo's back. It's crazy. And then they had that moment, but I thought that was a cool little moment because God, I mean, I can only imagine some of my you know some of the people that I know who have lost their mom. Um, a scene like that, I mean, pff, God, that's got to be surreal to watch for some people. And I know that my cousins, who uh, recently lost their aunt, or their mom recently, and I talked to them about it, and they said, yeah, I, I saw my mom, and it was like a crazy moment. 
And then the same thing. I mean, we, we, we're going to go into this when we mentioned Tony's dad, but I don't know, something about that one moment, it was like a redemption moment for the movie, the character, the character of Frigga, and just an amazing moment for like people dealing with the loss of a parent to have that last final moment. I thought that was pretty cool to see. You know what I mean? Like that, I don't know, you can't have that in real life, but at, at least it's like an outlet for the people who have lost a parent. Yeah, yes, and I'm sure that a lot of people had that had a similar feeling when Tony Stark had his last conversation with his father as well. I'm sure that that is a is a very real thing. And this was an interesting note, Brian, that I wanted to bring up with you because, of course, there is the the psychological theory of the the stages of grief that uh, people go through after some sort of a traumatic event, and there is an argument to be made that each of the Avengers is at various different stages. Each of the original Avengers, I should say. So, Brian, I want your thoughts on this. So, Denial, Natasha Romanoff still believes she can go back to her former role of Savior of the World and still hopes for a way to undo Thanos' snap and is even still working at Avengers headquarters. We have Anger, as Clint Barton is going on a literal murder spree around the world to get rid of the people he thinks should have died in Thanos' snap instead of his family and admittedly has lost all hope. Bargaining, Bruce Banner blames himself for the snap, since both the Hulk and Bruce were unable to stop Thanos. Bruce responds by trying to fix what he sees as his major mistake by getting rid of the Hulk and not treating him as a disease, and eventually merging to where he becomes Smart Hulk. And his willingness to jump at the opportunity to undo Thanos' snap shows he has not fully gotten over his prior defeat. There is depression, which is Thor. He is stopping a hero, spends his day drinking beers, playing video games, and eating way too much. As a result, he is out of shape and emotionally vulnerable, as seen when he reunites with his mother and starts crying like a little boy. And there is acceptance. Tony Stark has moved on from the Avengers after the snap. He has a daughter and lives happily with her and with Pepper Potts. He is the only member of the team who refuses to take part in the plan of going back in time to take the stones and undo Thanos' snap. Steve, however, acts as the grief counselor, trying to help the group get out of their funk, sending Natasha to Clint, and so on. And it's fitting, because, of course, the first time that we see Steve post-snap, he is a group there. He's leading a group therapy session. Brian, your thoughts? 100% on the mark. I I've kind of figured this out, like probably the second or third time in the theater when I was watching this and just feeling all these different range of emotions. And I was like, God, this is kind of like grief. You know what I mean? Cause I, I mean, you know, we all lose a loved one. You know what I mean? We go through those emotions and it just kind of reflected throughout. And I was seeing all these different emotions and especially Thor, like that was the one that hit hard the most. It's like a mixture of PT soldier PTSD and loss and guilt and survivor's guilt, all that mixed up into one. Um, and just all kinds of stuff, and, you know, I've had some family members that had to go through, you know, PTSD from back in the day in the 70s Vietnam, so I kind of recognize a lot of that behavior, so, you know, I picked up on it, and it was crazy, because, like, I, they really nailed it, and I was like, wow, they're really going through, like, the real emotions of a real catastrophic event that eliminated half the planet, and the repercussions of that, and how the world deals with it, and, yeah, just crazy to watch, and then it made me think, like, Marvel Comics has done something similar to this before, like the actual, I think it was Civil War, I'm, don't quote me 100%, it was something about the Civil War comic, where like it was the death of Captain America, and all these different superheroes are grieving, and there was like a seven issue comic, or a comic series about them, or each superhero dealing with the different stages of grief, 
dealing with the loss of Captain America. So I think that was where they got that from, and I was like, oh, I was picking up on it, and I looked it up. I forget the title, but I'm pretty sure it was like a Civil War storyline where Captain America gets killed. Like I think it was like 2007, 2006, something like that. But yeah, uh, just really, really well written in terms of that. Um, it's very layered, and you got to pick up on things, but I thought it was really well done because that first hour is just like this really draining emotional watch, especially Natasha. My God, like, I mean, she's probably the best performance of the whole movie, Scarlett Johansson, and you can tell like that scene where she's just eating a peanut butter sandwich and crying, and she can't help but cry. You know what I mean? Just true emotion. And, you know, you talked about it, just that that feeling of denial. And she can't, you know, she still feels like there's evil out there. And maybe and even even Captain America says, maybe we don't even need you in that position anymore. We don't need something like this. we got to move on. So, just crazy how they nailed it. All right. I think we should now get into the categories and the heroes. I mean, there's so many. There are literally a million directions that we should go, but I think I think we have to talk, start Tony, with Tony Stark. I think that's the only way that we can begin to talk about this movie and talk about the various categories. We're certainly going to get to all the original Avengers, and this is probably going to take a while to do. But let's talk about Tony Stark's journey. At the beginning, he is on death's door, and we see the weight loss. We see the fact that he is not eating. He is literally about to die when Captain Marvel saves the day and brings his ship down. And we see this very bitter Tony Stark yelling at Captain America a couple minutes later, talking about the failure hearkening back to the visions that he saw in Age of Ultron. That is another movie that this movie redeems in a lot of ways, with a couple of important and key moments, this being one of them. And then, really, Tony Stark, we don't see him for about 30 to 45 minutes, and the next time that we do, it's five years later, and he he has calmed down quite a bit. He has a daughter. Pepper Potts is reading books about composting, and he is out of the game, so to speak. And when they first approach him about time travel, he really has no interest because he is he has moved on. But of course, of course, this Tony Stark and him having this quality, Brian. Of course, we see him trying to figure it out, and he accidentally does in one of the funniest scenes of the entire movie uh, when he says the word shit and his daughter says the word shit and. We're off and running, and we get that line, that I love you 3000 line, and it's such a it's such a wonderful scene. And in a very short amount of time, Brian, I think they're really able to build this relationship between Morgan and Tony, and even though they don't get a lot of time together, it's uh, it's good that we see these two performers acting against each other to really to really raise the stakes and make it make this an important part of who Tony is. That Tony Stark is no longer just fighting for himself and quipping with Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts through life. That this is what this is who he is at this point. He is uh, he's a family man about halfway even into this movie before he goes back to the Avengers. Yeah. Uh, th- them having uh, Tony have a kid, I mean, that totally raises the stakes to a whole nother level. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, to put that sacrifice and to sacrifice himself to save, the, you know, the, the billions of people that were snapped away, um, you know, all that stuff in his mind and then thinking about his daughter, you know what I mean? So no wonder he was, like, hesitant at first, and I totally agree with that and the way they set it up. You know, he's moved on, he's accepted it, he's accepted defeat. It's weird. I feel like I don't know. It's a weird comparison, but I, I'm gonna kind of compare it to the Last Temptation of Christ, man. Because like in that one, when 
Willem Dafoe is Jesus, and he has that flashback at the end where he's taken down by that angel, and he gets to live that second life. This feels like Tony having a second chance. You know what I mean? After the failure and nearly being on death's door, and then having this angel-like figure coming out of nowhere in, in Captain Marvel, and taking him away from the brink of death, and then getting the second chance, and having this kid, you know, and getting married to Pepper finally. All this thing, all these things he's wanted to do, it happens in the five years after, you know what I mean? And now everything's on the line, because now he's got to risk everything, and then, you know, risk, you know, not being there for his daughter, which he does in the end, and then, you know, has to risk everything. So now the daughter, his daughter's going to be, you know, growing up without a father now, but... Uh, it's one of the sacrifices he had to do, and he figured by the end of it that is what he was meant to do. So, um, just the whole idea of Tony sacrificing himself—I mean, that goes back to the first Avenger. You know what I mean? First Avengers movie when Captain America saying, "You don't have the—I uh, forget the exact line—but you're not the kind of guy that's going to make the call to sacrifice, sacrifice himself." Basically, you know what I mean? And he does that by doing the thing with the nuke and throwing it back in the portal at the end. But then he takes it even further in this movie, sacrifices himself totally. You know the full arc, you know what I mean, from where he was in the first you know, Iron Man movie, where he was this cocky, you know, millionaire, playboy, philanthropist that just didn't really care too much, you know what I mean, even as Iron Man, and now all these years later, he's fighting for everything, so I thought it was great, and man, that beginning was so hard to watch, because I, I, it felt like he was going to die at that moment, man, but he didn't, <clears throat> but credit to Alan Silvestri, because uh, they play the music, uh, of his funeral at that moment when he is about to die, almost about to die on the ship. So it was almost this like, you know, they're uh, alluding to or prelude, you know, you know they're for, foreshadowing basically what's going to happen to Tony. We all know that he's going to die pretty much, right? But that music and then it hits again at the end. It was just a perfect moment. So the way they approach Tony in this, it's like, man, he, he's, the, he's that dude. You know what I mean? It's from the start. And, uh, God, he sacrificed everything, man. Why the fuck didn't we draft him then if we if we knew he was going to die? Because clearly we didn't. I forgot who had the order, but, uh, I mean... Tony Stark was not drafted. We bo- we all agreed that he was not going to die. Yeah, we convinced ourselves of that, didn't we? But uh, I guess we were just fooled. Fooled into thinking that. This is, a, this is why we can never make bets ever again, and we will not, we, we will not have any more betting uh, for the foreseeable future because... Of course, with there not being really any movies coming out, there's really nothing to bet on. But as we continue to talk about Tony Stark, of course, he comes back. He gives Captain America his shield back in a very symbolic gesture. And it's this really fine moment of these two kind of gaining trust in each other once again. We'll talk a little bit more about the the big scene as the, they decide to execute a time heist. And Tony Stark, of course, goes back in time. Ant-Man and Captain America and Hulk... And they have to go back specifically to 2012, and Tony Stark seemingly is about to have an easy time of getting his time of his stone until 2012. Hulk, angry about having to have walked down the stairs, uh, disrupts that, and Loki, in fact, gets the Tesseract and goes back in time. And there's your first Disney Plus spinoff right there. And Tony Stark then has to go back in time with Captain America to 1970, and we get probably one of the more powerful powerful scenes in the entire history of the MCU as Tony Stark gets to have one last conversation with Howard, and we get the great John Slattery returning to play the role as it is very clearly the day that Tony Stark is going to be born. 
and it's uh, it's a very powerful scene. And you mentioned Alan Silvestri. Alan Silvestri is probably best known for doing a lot of Robert Zemeckis movies, including Back to the Future. That score is iconic and so recognizable. But he's done other things like Force Gump, which I think I would argue is also a very good score. I mean, this is probably some of the best work that he's done in a long time. I mean, the score really soars at a number of points throughout the movie. And I think it especially works in that scene with Tony and Howard. They eventually get back, and of course, Tony has the big moment where he does a snap of his own and snaps Thanos and all of his minions and CGI creations out of existence, and that is a sacrifice that ultimately causes him to die, and it's fitting that he, of course, is the person who I think a lot of restarted the MCU. Of course, you know, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes people, but I think for so many people, the on-camera person who is behind it all is Tony Stark, and it is only fitting that his death kind of symbolizes a rebirth and a kind of a re rejigging of the MCU. Yeah, the end of uh, this whole saga kind of ends with him. So it's very interesting where they go from here. But man, uh, it just feels like everything in this in these roundup of movies, these four fa- phases or whatever, three phases. It's all surrounding Tony. You know what I mean? So who are they going to surround themselves around in the next? couple years i keep thinking it could be spider-man but with the sony stuff we talked about it last week that might be out the window so i don't know where they're gonna go because he was that anchor point you know what i mean from the start and i don't know what the anchor point's gonna be now you know what i mean we're gonna spurt off into these different directions in the mcu so i'm kind of hesitant as to where we're going but he was the man they built everything around him and it was so fitting to have him be the one to snap everyone away at the end and just yeah he I can't believe that they did it right, man. Because I, I was worried that they were going to like have a cheap death for him, but the way that they did the I Am Iron Man line and the snap and then tying back to what Doctor Strange said, the 14 million chances or whatever, different scenarios, this is the one chance. Um, everything just made sense. And all the theories came to fruition, I guess. Because um, uh, that one chance, that one moment in time, that was it. And he saved the world. So congrats to Tony Stark, man. But... Man, what a sacrifice and what a journey. And we mentioned the 11 movies. I think it was 11 movies you said. Just crazy because he's such an influence on all these other movies now. I mean, we mentioned it last week. He's such a big part of Spider-Man Far From Home, and he's not even in the movie. You know what I mean? So what effect is Tony Stark going to have on the rest of the MCU from now on? Who knows? But, uh, you know, don't be surprised if he makes, you know, like a cameo, like not even the Black Widow one that's been leaked out, but I'll probably come back and do a random cameo down the line, kind of surprise the fans, but nothing too major. But, uh, yeah, don't don't bring him back from the dead. That'd be literally too much and unnecessary. That would be the worst possible decision, I think. And in talking about Captain America, we see him at the beginning of the movie shaving off his luscious beard, which is very unfortunate because it really was a great beard, and uh, it's a it's a damn shame. But I guess you have to have a clean-shaven Captain America uh, for the rest of the movie as he kind of takes charge, and as uh, they go to their mission to find Thanos on his uh, mysterious farm planet. It's always a farm, Brian. Why is it always a farm? I mean, Tony Stark's basically got a farm. Thanos has a farm. The Clint Burton has a farm. There's like three farms in this movie. Old MacDonald had a farm. Um, yeah, uh, farms just have this symbol of peace, I guess. Or just maybe just reminds people of Kent or Jonathan Kent and Superman and all that stuff. I don't know. 
And of course, Captain America is leading the big group therapy session, and he visits he visits Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff, and there's a line that he says that as as animals have been reclaiming their space in nature with uh, with COVID nineteen, that there is a reference that Captain America makes to the whales and and some of the animals returning to some of the water because there are less boats. And I can't help but think of every time I see the I, I see the lions that are laying on the street or rats that are randomly around or deer that are in these big cities, these empty cities. I can't help but think about that line that nature is kind of reclaiming itself. That's what I'm saying, man. That's what it made it seem so eerie. Like, I don't know. It, it's weird. It's it's not exactly the scope and scale of a snap, but we're definitely going through some of those emotions, I think. And I think, I think a lot of those grief counseling sessions are going to be a real thing a year from now. It feels like it, at least. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is a distinct possibility. So, of course, Captain America, we see him have the locket with Peggy Carter in it. He may also have one of the genuinely funniest scenes in the entire MCU as he confronts his 2012 self. His 2012 self has that terrible Captain America suit, and it's nice that the MCU can laugh at the fact that that suit was fucking garbage, and we see the the, the echoed line of, I could do this all day, and they have their big fight, and of course Captain America is able to use future knowledge to get away with uh, with what he needed to do in getting uh, one of the stones and using the line that Bucky is alive. He also is using his knowledge of the future earlier on. The elevator scene that is very much meant to echo the scene that took place in Captain America Winter Soldier and is also a nice nod to the comics by him admitting that he was quote-unquote in Hydra by saying Hail Hydra. Just some fantastic moments involving Captain America when he goes back in time and even when they go back to 1970 and he sees Peggy, and he is longing uh, for Peggy Carter in that moment. And Captain America also gets to say the most famous line and the one line that everybody has been waiting for for the last 10 years. This was teased at the end of Ultron, but he finally got to say, Avengers, assemble. When I think about it, Brian, Captain America really does get the best moments of this movie of course he gets to he is worthy of thor's hammer something that also is a payoff from avengers age of ultron and he literally gets to end the movie a movie that is three hours long has all of these characters has all of these incredible moments and this movie literally ends with captain america steve rogers and peggy carter dancing the night away yeah this might be my favorite captain america uh, in any of the movies, you know what I mean? Like he, he gets all he gets all these moments. He makes fun of himself. He's very has this meta moment with the Hail Hydra. When when he said Hail Hydra, the crowd went like electric because, I mean, I think it was like going viral that thing the year before with the comic book thing and Hail Hydra and like fans were not having it. You know what I mean? And then that meta moment happens, and then the crowd is just laughing and buzzing. And then they're laughing at the whole America's ass thing, and it's like, God, my ass did not look good in that in those pants. And then, you know, I could do this all day stuff and making fun of that. 
And then, I don't know why it's so funny to me, but it was it was still funny in the theater to a lot of people when he mentioned the thing about Bucky, and then all of a sudden, 2012 Cap stops moving, and he's like, what? And then they're just, it's almost as if they're making fun of that whole relationship uh, in that moment, but it was, you know, it was very tongue-in-cheek and very, you know, they were making fun of it in a nice way, you know what I mean? Not not too, too heavy, but I, I just enjoyed those moments, you know what I mean? Because everything we know about the character kind of goes back full circle with all these moments and the and the lines and the trademark lines and the shield and everything and him fighting himself. I mean, that was great, too. Uh, all these moments. And then the one moment, man, at the end where he's dancing like that. I just I never thought I would ever see that the way they set that up in the first Captain America movie made it seem like that moment was never, ever, 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 ever going to happen. And then we start throwing time travel around, and all these theories were going around. And at the time, like, I think it was, like, maybe a week before the movie came out, someone mentioned, like, what if he finally gets to have that last dance? And I mentioned that to some of my friends, like, dude, don't say that. You're going to make me cry. And then it happens, and then at the end of the movie, we, we look at each other, and we're just like, uh, yeah, we had, that, was, that was a moment. And we could tell we were just crying in that moment because, you know what I mean, like, that is such an amazing thing to build up to and making it seem like it's impossible. And then all of a sudden you throw time travel in there and then they tease it halfway through when they go to 1970. Man, that was totally, totally worth it, you know what I mean? Um, And I mentioned that two years ago when we were talking about that Captain America First Avenger podcast, man, how that's one of the most powerful moments for me in all the MCU when they talk about the dance and then it just cuts to black or whatever because he hits the ice. So that coming full circle, he deserves that moment, man. He totally deserves that moment, and he got it, and that's the final moment of the movie. And Cap's the man. I think Captain America is my favorite MCU character, and just based on that ending alone. You know what I mean? Getting that moment, it just made it seem so awesome and worth the journey. Let's talk about Thor next, as, of course, he is dealing with legitimate PTSD. This is not something that he even gets over, really, as... He's very much dealing with this throughout the movie, and even at the end, he's still trying to find himself. But where we start him off with is he's in a big coat, just drinking a a solitary beer. He would be, of course, drinking a lot more as the movie would go on. He did get to go for the head and kill Thanos 15 minutes into this movie, and I think that's one of the biggest surprises of the entire film, is the fact that Thor kills Thanos. And I What I really appreciate about that is I think you really have to set up this idea of the Avengers doing whatever it is they're going to be doing to rectify this situation, but take the villains off the board, if not for at least a little while. And I think this really did that. Of course, we know that Thanos is going to play some sort of role at the end of this movie, and which he does, but I think taking him off the board was a really good idea. And the fact that Thor is the one to do it, but this doesn't solve his problem, that even though he is able to find a place for his people to live. Uh, Apparently, it's the same town that Aquaman and his people live, uh, but Thor and uh, the rest of his folks, including Valkyrie, are are just living it up. And those, those scenes, when we first see Thor, I mean, of course, I think it generates a lot of laughter, but there is clearly a lot of pain that is going on with Thor. And this is something that is even realized when he and Rocket go back to uh, go back in time. I think it's a really powerful moment. That scene uh, with Frigga is a, is a very, very powerful moment because I think we talked a lot about Rene Russo 
not getting the love that she deserves and the fact that we really didn't get a lot of payoff to uh, that relationship with Thor. And even that one scene, I think, really does make a difference. And then Thor, of course, discovers that he is still worthy and uh, calls for his hammer. And that is that is another great moment because, of course, it gets paid off later with Captain America. But just that moment of waiting and not quite understanding what's going on, but bringing Thor's old hammer back from time, I think that really works and makes a lot of sense. And then, of course, his role in, in the final battle and going back with the Guardians of the Galaxy and having another hilarious scene with Peter Quill. I think Captain America and... and Iron Man are definitely the main characters of the MCU, and it feels like their their journeys have ended, but it really feels like Thor has been rebooted in a way, and I am really excited for what they go through next, because I think there was a scenario where died or went away, but it really feels like with what they did in Thor Ragnarok and what they did in these last two Avengers movies, the idea of killing him off really doesn't make any sense. And I don't know how many more movies Chris Hemsworth is ultimately going to do, but I'm glad that he's going to be back at least for a couple. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Iron Man and Cap are like Austin and The Rock, and Thor's kind of like Triple H, you know what I mean? And he's just going to be there as the company guy, and they're not going to go to the wayside with him because he's consistent, and they just rebooted the character, like you said, and there's so many things that you can do with him now, especially with Taika at the helm. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad they left it open-ended, and I think they did it on purpose, knowing that, okay, they, he's the character's re- reinvigorated, if we kill him off now, we're going to kill all, a lot of momentum, and I think fans are really sticking to him now more than ever. So, that was the smart decision to leave his arc incomplete, and you, f- you definitely feel that by the end, because, like, he's still out of shape. I think, I think if they made him get into shape in this movie, then you could put a bow on it, and then his arc is done. But the fact that he's still out of shape... Still a lot left on the table, and we're going to bring Jane Foster back, and the fact that he still is worthy, but he relinquished the throne, and what it's going to become of Asgard. All those questions are are still out there after the movie, so I think that's a great thing, because it leaves this intrigue of what's going to happen, and all the different possibilities, and because he's connected to the cosmic world of the MCU, you can open up these different doors with... Um, you know, there's rumors of this character called Gore the God Butcher that Christian Bale might be playing, and then... Um, which can connect to all these different things, and then eventually Galactus. So there's all these different avenues that Thor can take, and everyone was clamoring for him to team up with the Guardians of the Galaxy at the end. Um, even though the, the the timeline of the uh, pre-production of those movies are, have gone out of order now, I still think we're still going to get him in, in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Um, there's still money to be made with uh, as Guardians of the Galaxy team-up, even though they're going to have to go out of order now. Um, but I still think, you know, he's, he's such a great character in this, and it's so different than what we're used to with Thor. Like, no one expected this. Nobody. They didn't tease this at all in any of the trailers. They left him average-sized Thor. They just left him... They pretty much used the visuals at the end of Infinity War, what he looked like as the visuals of what you think he's going to look like in this movie, and then they just did a completely different look and changed things up and shocked the audience, because the audience was shocked in my theater. I'm sure everyone was shocked. And then once you put the pieces together, yeah, it really says a lot about depression and what it can do to a person. Or he's from Asgard, but still, like, he's it's it's a human approach, you know what I mean? It's just something like that. I mean, we forget that his his father, mother, brother, all killed in front of him, man. In front of him. Not only the fact that he's dealing with the guilt of, you know, the, the snap, because he didn't aim for the head the first time. 
And, you know, it's just things like that that he's got to deal with. And I want to see that resolution. And hopefully there's a scene or a bunch of scenes like that that Taika uses in the fourth movie of Thor to kind of give him that resolution and have that kind of therapeutic kind of relief. You know what I mean? Because he definitely needs that. He didn't get it in this movie, which I'm glad they didn't because, like I said, they would have just put a, a bow on it and that's it. But, you know, this leaves the door open for a lot more storytelling. I do wish that we had gotten one or two less fat jokes. I think that... That is something that I, that I could have lived without. I, and I know that they really did try, and there was a lot of effort putting into Thor being fat and still being a hero, but there were a couple jokes that, that felt a little bit out of line, given what they were trying to do. And I think they kind of undermined themselves in doing that. So, you know, I think we've generally been very positive on this movie, but when when Rhodes is making a joke about him being made a cheese whiz and Frigga tells him to eat a salad, I think that that's the kind of stuff that I could have lived without. Yeah, my mom tells me eating more salads, too, so I get that. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, let's talk about Natasha Romanoff, as, as of course. Uh, she is having a really hard time dealing with this because uh, this is really her only family. This is something that Steve Rogers says that she was, um, in this case, the, the Avengers were her family, and you you definitely see that through, throughout uh, the first part of this movie, and I think it's it's really unfortunate the way that her character has been treated. I think we are getting a Black Widow movie too late, and it's not just because of 19 is point, but it just feels like we should have gotten a Black Widow movie years earlier, and the fact that we didn't is a real shame, and it's especially a shame because, of course, she dies in this movie, but she doesn't get near the attention that Tony Stark has, and it's really unfortunate because she also sacrificed herself as, as part of this mission, and it's a it's a real shame that she did not get to be a part of the girl mo- the the girl power moment. Which, as cheesy as it was, the fact that Black Widow, who has been there almost since the beginning, since Iron Man two, did not get to be a part of it, and I, I just think it's a real shame. And I you know I know Scarlett Johansson has certainly said and done some problematic things, and I do want to acknowledge that that she has done those things, and they are indefensible. But I think she's really good in this movie. And just, I think if you take a look at her 2019 collectively, I think she had a really underrated and fantastic year. The fact that uh, I think she was easily the best part of Marriage Story. I think she gives a, a fantastic performance in that movie. She's really good in Jojo Rabbit. And she's really good in this movie, even though she's not going to get an Academy Award nomination. She's still very good in this movie. Yeah, people forget how... I think people forgot how great she was up until last year when she got the double nomination for Jojo Rabbit and Marriage Story. But I kept thinking, like, God, like, even the first time around when she, you know, I'm watching this movie the first time and she's crying at that table and, like, her hair is just completely, I wouldn't say a mess, but it's like she's just stopped dyeing it, you know what I mean? You can see the roots spread and everything, and it's just like, okay, she's going through some real shit because she doesn't seem like the Natasha that we know. And I think that's... I think that's the powerful thing about this movie is we see these characters that we're so used to being so strong-willed and, you know what I mean, it's stoic, and all of a sudden everyone's just vulnerable and, like, depressed and, like, going through all these different range of emotions. And to see to see Natasha like this, I didn't, you know, it's hard for me to watch because I'm not used to seeing her like this. I'm used to seeing her being a leader, you know, like, really on point and not having moments of, like, you know, vulnerability. And she's showing it here, and it just feels like... It feels like a totally different movie. It feels like I'm watching, like, a Scarlett Johansson drama. You know what I mean? Like, 
I, I wasn't expecting that. And then the first, you know, it's pretty much like the first hour of the movie feels like this really depressing drama of, about grief and, and loss. You know what I mean? And she just nails it. And she's crying, and I'm getting, like, emotional watching this. And I'm just like, God, I feel depressed too, man, because I know these are fictional people, but I feel your pain. So she's really nailing it down. And, I mean, the sacrifice that she makes. I know people were disagreeing with her being the sacrifice. Um, and I have some weird thoughts about how Nebula never mentioned the fact that they have to sacrifice someone on Vormir and just didn't totally forgot to mention that to them. But that's a whole other story. But, uh... What, I, I always... I don't know how I feel about that, and I think you bring up a really legitimate point about Nebula, but did does she know exactly what happened, though? She, I think she has to. I think she figured out that something happens where one person has to die, obviously, and she just didn't mention... I mean, she mentions that that's where her sister dies, but I, I don't know. It just felt like there was some shadiness there that she didn't mention, but again, I don't know if that's just some assumed knowledge that is just under the radar and she doesn't really know. I don't know. But it just that, that was kind of fishy to me. And then from what I've heard and from the interviews that I've read post uh, after the movie came out, um, the writers, uh, Marcus uh, and uh, I forget his other name, uh, McFeely or whatever, and the other guy, I guess a lot of the female cast and crew members were given the decision to make the final decision whether or not Scarlett Johansson was the one to make that sacrifice, and they all voted for her. All the females, apparently. So I guess that was... I guess they did a vote. So it wasn't so male-skewed, I guess, as it, you know, as it seems. But I guess that was, like, the vote on the crew. So who knows? I guess everyone just has, like, a different perspective on things. And I guess that's what the a lot of the, the female creative people on the team wanted. So there it is. I mean, I guess, I guess I don't necessarily have a problem with her being the sacrifice. I think... I just wish that it had been handled better... And I wish the scene itself was less clunky because I think it's it's I think it's one of the worst scenes in the movie. Just the way that they're going back and forth, and it's it's it almost comes off as them trying to be funny when it's actually something very serious. And I think I don't think that scene works at all, which is funny because I think the scene on Vormir in Infinity War works out tremendously well and is one of the more powerful scenes in the movie. But even that, even that, I don't think they did as good of a job establishing the Gamora. A Thanos relationship. So I think those Vormir, Vormir scenes, they both, I think they both in each movie uh, needed a little bit more legwork. So I, I do want to talk about Hawkeye as well. Hawkeye, of course, we see him at the beginning of the movie. Then we really don't see him until they go to Tokyo. He has spent five years murdering people, Brian. But apparently it's okay because he runs around the end of the movie with the Infinity Gauntlet like it's the movie Aliens, and it's all okay. Yeah, one giant game of football in that in that whole sequence. I don't know if you picked up on that, but it just felt like a football uh, with superheroes. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, it was weird because I kept joking in my head. I guess he just killed that dude from uh, that Wolverine movie, and we got a crossover within a crossover that no one's mentioning. But uh, yeah, that was that was pretty weird that they casted that guy from uh, the Wolverine um, sequel. Um, but him just killing people for five years, yeah, I guess that makes sense, because he feels like, I don't know, like all these other people should have died instead of his family, and all these, you know, asshole murderers, bastards, gangsters, thieves, thugs, whatever, he's just going out and annihilating everybody, and um, that's such a Punisher move, too, like, I'm surprised they didn't, like, do something with, like, I don't know, make him team up with the Punisher or something, because that's totally what the Punisher's all about, and they made, um, 
Hawkeye do that as the Ronin. They didn't mention Ronin in particular, the name, but um, that's what uh, Clint is going through right now, those, the whole Ronin character. And then he takes the mask off. I thought it was weird that Natasha was just happened to be standing there at that moment when he kills the dude. Like, uh, you could have helped him that whole time, and you're just standing there, hello. But again, cinematic, uh, you know, creativity there, whatever. But um, his journey is interesting. I, I just felt like, I don't know, like, you're going through all this to, to get your family back and to not see them by sacrificing yourself. That was the thing that really had me confused. Because, like, he's so willing to sacrifice himself on Vormir, but he was so willing to do anything to see his family, you know, even when he does that test run to see his kid again. So I thought that was weird that he was so willing to sacrifice himself when he wanted to see his family so bad. So that was kind of off. But um, but yeah, it was good that we didn't have an Infinity War, I think. I think it was a little bit awkward because there there is that scene where he does the time travel and goes back to see his kids. But I think the whole that Vormir scene, or the Vormir scene he's trying to get across is that he has done some really awful things. And this is something that the movie acknowledges, but they don't really get any, go any further into it. And Hawkeye is just treated like a, a regular member of the Avengers. And this is despite the fact that War Machine earlier on in the movie says that he's not even sure that he wants to find Clint Burton at this point. So I, it's it's a weird thing that they're trying to balance. And I, I'm, I'm not sure how we're going to end up with the Clint Barton character. I know they're going to be supposedly doing the Hawkeye TV series for Disney+. Plus, But given Jeremy Renner's real life uh, what's going on in his real life. I'm just not sure if that's going to happen because uh, there have been some accusations and I- I'm not sure if we're going to ever see that, especially given with everything that's going on right now. So we'll have to see how that all develops. But uh, I do want to address a couple of the other heroes. Of course, we have to address Hulk. He becomes Dr. Hulk and he becomes Smart Hulk. There really isn't a lot of other... It feels like the problem with Hulk is, because he doesn't get his own movies, that a lot of development comes between the movies, so we don't see him become Dr. Hulk. He just is Dr. Hulk. He, of course, is the one that actually brings everyone back. As much as people praise Tony Stark, and he's the one that gets his own in-universe documentary in the Spider-Man movie, guys, folks... Hulk is the one that brings everyone back. He's the one that snaps everyone back into existence after five years. And that's something that we should not forget because it seems like even people within the MCU are forgetting this fact. Yeah, and it was was a perfect moment because he even says himself, it's almost as if he was meant to be the one to bring people back because of the gamma radiation in the fucking Infinity Gauntlet. And he's the only one because his body's got all the gamma in him to absorb that kind of energy. So it was almost as if they were saying destiny made him the Hulk for this one moment in time down the line for this one moment in history to bring everything back to normal. So I thought that was a great, a great poetic moment. Like when everything started, you know, when they were, they were trying to figure out who's going to be the snap. I thought it was going to be Thor to get his redemption and he was all willing to do it. And then the camera focuses on Hulk and it was like, Oh my God. That's perfect. And then he says it where he makes it even more perfect. Where It's almost as if he was meant to do it, you know, and it's true. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to see him become that. But, again, that because of this five-year jump, you miss a lot of stuff. And I feel like there's so much story to be told in that five years for all these different characters. And especially the Hulk, to see that 18-month journey. Um, I mean, God, that could have been an amazing five-minute, ten-minute sequence of him a montage trying to figure it all out and all the different incarnations of him going through the different stages and him finally clicking and getting that balance 
Um, but yeah, I couldn't help but feel like he was like probably the funniest character in this movie, maybe. Because like I mentioned, yeah, he had that amazing line about time travel. It's either all, it's either everything is a joke or none of it is a joke. And then he's doing the thing about, um, you know, Scott comes back as a baby. He's like he'll grow, he'll grow into an adult eventually. <laughs> and then just little things like that. And then uh, uh, Scott Lang is staring at him at that at the booth. And then he's got all that food around him, and he's all like. I'm so confused, and then Dr. Hulk goes, these are confusing times, my friend, here, eat something, and then, <laughs> I don't know, and he's like, I'm wearing shirts now, and I was just, that is just so funny to me, the fact that he says that line, and it's such a simple, stupid line, but the way Mark Ruffalo delivers that line, I'm just laughing my ass off, and I'm just like, God, the Hulk is saying these weird lines, and I'm finding it funny, you know what I mean, and it's just like, God, everything everything about that whole character, man. He was, like, the funniest character in the first Avengers movie. And, uh, yeah, I think they brought that comedy back here for... You know, because I think you need that lightheartedness in a, in a really depressing movie, especially, like, this in the first hour. And he's that lightheartedness. And it works out, man, because you got this goofy-looking whole character and you're just kind of taken aback by it but you're just laughing because it's like the situations that they're in and then the kids come up to him smiling and then he's smiling he's like can you take our picture and you're just like what the fuck is going on because <laughs> you've never seen the Hulk like this on screen you know what I mean so that was so unique and new on their approach and then him having that moment at the end to bring everyone back um and he he mentions he tries to bring Natasha back but that the the gods will not have that so there he at least he tried and of course, he does get to interact with Tilda Swinton as well in in the uh, in the big Back to the Future two chalkboard scene. It's uh, very much harkens back, except they use a lot more CGI. Yeah, and uh, God, I hope that uh, they put the stones back in time. <laughs> I mean, obviously they can't do it with uh, with Loki, but man, that's that's see, that's a whole other movie right there. Them putting the stones back in time. So there's so much in that five years. That's Captain America's movie, which we will probably never see. Uh, so that we, we've covered all of the original Avengers, and I do want to get into uh, just a few of the other heroes, because there are a lot of characters in this movie, as you know, Brian. I, I think Ant-Man, to me, is probably, other than the other original Avengers, it feels like Ant-Man is the one that gets the most time to develop, and we see him come back. And he gets a good five to ten minutes. He's the one that's carrying this movie. And it's amazing to me that in this movie that is three hours and has so much going on, the Paul Rudd, the kind of the least significant character in the MCU up to this point, the Ant-Man movies have very much been trivialized. Yet he is the one that kind of gets a lot of time. And we see the emotions of seeing his daughter. And we see the emotions when he's talking to Tony. And I think Paul Rudd is just so good in this movie. I mean, I've said this about just about every performance, but Paul Rudd is able to be the comedic sidekick when he needs to be. He's able to be paranoid in when in New York when he thinks they failed. He's able to be emotional. He's able to do the action sequences. I can't say enough good things about Paul Rudd and the, the way the Ant-Man character is portrayed. This movie made me want to see Ant-Man 3 more than either of the first two Ant-Man movies. I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. Um, let's let's put it out there as well that, that that rat that pressed the button pretty much saved the MCU. <laughs> A rat saved the MCU, ladies and gentlemen. Um, if that rat was not there, he would have not been out at that exact moment. He would have still be in there, probably. 
and half the population of the world will still be um, disappeared. So, um, thank you, Rat. Um, but yeah, him. I mean, God, that 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 scene where he finds his daughter five years later and the look of shock, and I, I'm we're just so used to him being, you know, goofy, you know, Paul Rudd. You know what I mean? Like comedy Paul Rudd, the Paul Rudd that we're so used to making, like you know, these weird, awkward jokes, and then you make him, he's making you laugh all the time, but that, that look on his face, and they're not even saying anything, they're just looking at each other, I mean, God, you talk about the emotions, man, and you, Paul Rudd looks like he's about to break down and just have this an emotional breakdown, and I just did not expect that from, from Paul Rudd, you know what I mean? Like, Paul Rudd giving you this great dramatic moment in a movie? Rare. Very, very rare. So, credit to him for that, and he still looks like he's from Clueless in 1995, so credit to him for always looking young, and, um, yeah, uh, it was cool to see him at the end, but, I don't know, uh, the stuff with the van at the end became irrelevant, pretty much, but, uh, I guess it was just more screen time for Ant-Man and the Wasp to have a little bit of the, that, you know, duo mission thing in the, in the middle of the, the battle, but, uh, it kind of went for not in the end, but, um, but, yeah, I'm excited for Ant-Man 3 based on that, and the fact that we got Cassie grown up, um, yeah, and, and the rumors about a young Avengers build up in that movie, I think, is going to be perfect. That that way, you can kind of slip in a Hawkeye, the daughter, not the, not Clint, and kind of just have Clint written out pretty much. Um, I think there's a lot of setup there, and the fact that we got Michelle Pfeiffer again, and I think she should be, I don't know, like that, you know, elder statesman to guide these new young Avengers and teach them about powers, considering that she's got these all these powers now as well. So, um, I thought that was you know a little cool thing there that she was at the funeral. So. And perhaps teach them how to make suits, as she knows how to do that from her time as Catwoman as well. Oh, you went there. You went there. I certainly did. You know, it's like Avengers Endgame harkens back to all the MCU. We also have to do our own callbacks as well, and Catwoman is perhaps one of the most important ones, given our feelings on that wonderful 2004 uh, star vehicle for one Halle Berry. And uh, if you want to even make more connections, in that movie was uh, Benjamin Bratt. Benjamin Bratt was in 2015's Doctor Strange, and this gives us a chance to talk about Doctor Strange. Yes, we can talk about Doctor Strange very briefly because he is, he plays a very small role, but he is, of course, the person that kind of brings everyone back, and Benedict Cumberbatch apparently had to shoot a lot of his stuff away from the rest of the Avengers, so if you're wondering why he's in a lot of scenes by himself and really isn't, even in some of the post-mortem, that is why. Uh, another character that I think we need to talk about is Falcon, because he is Captain America by the end of this movie. But I think he gets one of the great moments that I don't think you even realize it is a great moment until afterward, because it's a little bit hard to hear when he says, on your left. That, of course, harkens back to Captain America and Falcon in Winter Soldier, when Captain America would say, on your left, as he was running past him. But it is, uh, it is a great moment, and the fact that we do have a, a black Captain America, I think, is very powerful. And I know that some people have kind of poo-pooed the idea of this uh, Captain America and the Winter Soldier, or Falcon and the Winter Soldier, this Disney Plus series, but I'm really looking forward to it, uh, because I think um, I think that he, he gives another solid performance, and... I, I really want to see where this character goes and what they do with the uh, with this idea of a black Captain America. Yeah, very excited for that series. Um, even uh, Bucky got his little moment right there as well. 
But uh, again, like I mentioned, uh, you know, in the burning questions last week, I don't see him as the, them becoming the leaders, even though Captain America has a prominent name, you know, to back or to live a legacy up to. But uh, they're definitely going to be major players, I think, in the in the coming years. And I think they got to be in that, you know, Hawkeye, Natasha kind of role, the supporting characters, even uh, Rhodey. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lot of potential for them to tell a great story in, the, in, in that the idea of, you know, there's uh, they can play with a lot with the whole race thing, but also the whole idea of who controls what Captain America is. The Captain America is he owned by the government, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot you can tell in that in that story, and I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that miniseries um, as a whole. So, um, And I hope they bring back a lot of that feeling of Winter Soldier. I know they're kind of teasing it, so... Because uh, I, I think we need a little bit of that grounded Winter Soldier kind of te- storytelling back um, to kind of counter with this cosmic kind of thing that's been going on for the last several years. I really think that they did a fantastic job with so many of these characters. And we uh, we we are an hour and 15 minutes into this podcast, Brian. We are not even out of the hero section yet. Yeah, we still got, we still got Rhodey. We got Nebula and... Uh, I was going to mention Rocket. For the love of God, Rocket is in the Avengers, man. And I, I still can't get over that a year later. And he's and he's sending emails to Natasha. And we're just accepting the fact that he is in the Avengers now and that he's just a regular dude. I wanted a scene at least of them interacting and like, hi, my name is Rocket. Uh, are you a raccoon? Uh, no. Uh, thank you for... And then, you know, just all that kind of shit. They just kind of brushed over that. But it just made me even more in shock because I'm just sitting there looking at this and I'm like, Rocket is in the Avengers? Officially? I think you are definitely going to see a lot more of Rocket. I They have teased, James Gunn has, that they are going to be getting into Rocket's past in Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and that's something that I'm really excited for. I remember we talked a ton about Rocket in our Avengers Infinity War, both of those podcasts. He does not have as prominent of a role here, but he certainly gets his moments to shine, as you mentioned, just the idea of him being an Avenger. I think there's a very powerful moment where he and Nebula hold hands as they are the only surviving members of the Guardians of the Galaxy, and Rocket does get a bit of a reunion. It's not emphasized as much as it should be, I think, when he is uh, reunited with Groot, but that is still something that has happened. I think that one of the cool things uh, that has worked out so well is that they have built the Guardians tremendously, and I think what's so cool is that Rocket Raccoon feels as important as any of the other characters because he survived and was indeed a member of the Avengers uh, for five years. And with Nebula, it's it's not subtle, but the fact that she literally kills her past self to eventually join the Guardians of the Galaxy, I think that is very symbolic of the direction that they are going in with that character, that she is going to be and is uh, getting away from her abusive father, and they're going to be uh, they're going to be going on their little adventures now. So I think they did a really good job with Nebula and really developing that character and fleshing her out, having those moments with Tony Stark at the beginning of this, her giving up the food to Tony Stark. It's just I can't say enough good things about the way that they they gave so many characters even outside of the main Avengers, their own little arcs. And I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, I can't wait to see her in Volume 3 now. And it's weird, like, I feel like ever since Jumanji 1 and 2 came out, like, she's even, Karen Gillian is even a bigger star now 
than she was in the after the first two Guardians movies came out. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird how just star power can kind of go up and down, and I feel like she's gonna almost be a major player now, especially with the rumor that she's gonna be the star of the, the new Pirates franchise reboot coming up. I think that's perfect casting. You switch that up a little bit, maybe even make her the daughter of Jack Sparrow, and kind of make her a little, you know, Jack Sparrowish a little bit. But still, like I think she's a great actress. I love her in the Doctor Who series that she. I think it was three seasons she was on. She was great there. I, I like her becoming more of this bigger star. And the fact that they gave her all the screen time just shocked the hell out of me, man. Because I felt like she got more to do in this particular movie than the two Guardians movies. You know what I mean? And we got so much growth from her character. And the, and you were right on the money. Just her killing her past self. It's like her embracing this idea of being someone good and being an Avenger. And that little thing with Tony, man, where she's just learning to be... Like, that. to me, that whole beginning with her and Tony was about not, you know, just teasing Tony's death and, you know, having this, you know, second uh, um, chance at, you know, having a kid and whatever, but it was about Nebula learning how to be a human being, <laughs> you know what I mean, just learning to be human, and that's what Tony taught her in that, in that little time span, because you can tell, like, she's adapting into, like, these more human emotions, right, like, as soon as she gets off the ship, she's holding hands with Rocket, right, and then not only that, she learns how to, like, control her emotions, winning and losing in that little game of paper football. I thought that was so subtle for that first five minutes, man. And then you and then you mentioned them holding hands, and I didn't even pick up on that until the second or third time around. So just incredible stuff from the Guardians crew that, you know, and I still can't believe that we have yet to have, like, you know, like, press tours with both Vin Diesel and Bradley Cooper together, you know, when they are, like, pretty much a father and son on screen uh, relationship, you know, for, in the MCU, and they never, ever do any press together. I find that very fascinating. Uh, just weird stuff there, but, um, yeah, and I don't know, it's weird, Bradley Cooper almost does no press for any of the MCU movies that he does, Rocket, and I feel like he did such a great job in this movie that he deserves some of it, but he didn't. He just didn't do it. I think he's busy with his other directorial projects at this point, but uh, we know he does make quite a bit of money from these movies, and there's really only a couple, we are not, there's just no way we're going to be able to talk about every single character. So I think Spider-Man is a good place to kind of end our conversation on the heroes because he is able to come back and have a one final hug with Tony Stark and is a is a prominent part of when Tony Stark dies. So I, I think it's good that Spider-Man is a part of this and this was originally going to be his one of his last appearances in a in a group MCU movie. As it turns out, that is not the case. Oh, I want to talk to Peter Quill. I, I think the Russo secretly hate Chris Pratt because the way that Peter Quill has gotten treated in both Infinity War and Endgame, there is no other logical conclusion because he is treated like an absolute idiot. One of the characters even calls him an idiot in this movie. I was getting, like, Homer Simpson's vibes, you know, especially when they were looking at him dancing, and then you see that alternate perspective of him dancing at the beginning of Guardians 1, and then they're just like, oh, he's an idiot. And I was just getting, thinking, like, yeah, they really kind of treating him kind of not so <laughs> highly, but I guess that's just kind of the angle they're going for. Um, if you think about it, he does do a lot of dumb stuff in the, in the Guardians movies, but he does have his great heroic moments. But he was downplayed in this movie a lot, but... Um, like we mentioned, there's just so many freaking characters in this movie, so 
Yeah, it's an, it's unfortunate. And you mentioned Spider-Man. He has this moment, and then that moment with Ned that I love at the end where they start hugging and crying because they haven't seen each other in forever. It's a really big emotional moment. Um, I got to mention Captain Marvel because I fucking love her in this movie for, like, the short time she's in it. When she comes out at the end, she's badass, and everyone's just standing back in, in awe of her, and it just looks like she can just take care of business on her own. And the fact that she made Thanos seem so desperate... You know, desperate to that he was going to lose, and that he did such a heel move, like such a wrestling move. You know what I mean? She's about to beat his ass, and then he takes out the power stone, and then kind of manipulates the situation and kind of prevents her from doing the thing and killing him. But man, she looked like she was just going to annihilate him, like easily, easily. So, and the way that I don't know, I like her hair. I like that she cut her hair to make it look like the comic, and it's short and awesome. And I just love that look. I don't know what it is, but it's something about the confidence she has in her in her demeanor now and the way that she and I know we mentioned that they filmed this backwards from Captain Marvel but I just love her in this type of role where she's like confident and kicking ass and mature and a leader you know what I mean that's what I want from that character it's too bad that she has to go off planet so much but yeah and I wish they kind of built up that thing with Rhodey because like they keep making this illusion and I, I know in the comics I guess that um you know, her and Rhodey have this relationship, and I wish they kind of went into that because they kind of looked at each other in that one moment in the, in, the, in the hologram thing, in the hologram scene. So, yeah, um, I thought she was great in this for the short amount of time she was in it, and I want more of that. You know, I want more of it. And I still want more interactions with her and Black Panther and Spider-Man and kind of get that going because that was the one thing I still wanted out of this movie that we didn't really get is all these different interactions instead of more of the same interactions that we got already. I have a feeling that you are going to see a lot of that in future movies, but Brian, we desperately need to move on. I am giving this a 10. A uh, 10 for me as well, but the villain score is going to be the complete opposite because uh, there's pretty much no villains for like 90 minutes of this movie. Uh, the villain of this movie is time. That is basically what we get out of this. So we talked a ton about the heroes. We don't really have a lot to say about the villains because they are very much de-emphasized. Thanos is killed in the first 15 minutes, and then we get another version of Thanos at the end. And I understand that, yes, they have to have the Avengers battle Thanos. That's just the way that this has to end, because you have to have the poetry of Thanos and his crew getting dusted, just as you had that happen with the Avengers at the end of Infinity War. But there's just something about it that didn't quite work. And it's really unfortunate because you get a moment where Scarlet Witch is able to pretty much decimate Thanos by herself. But he doesn't really know who she is, so it doesn't really matter when she says, you've taken everything away. And Thanos says, I don't even know who you are. I mean, that's that's kind of a very meta moment because he really doesn't. And I think that some of that gets some of it gets lost. And it's just unfortunate. Because I don't know if there's a way to do something else, if there was a way to have Thanos live, but I think having Thanos loom through so much of this movie would have been to its detriment, and doing what they did was probably the best possible solution. Despite that, Brian, I don't feel comfortable giving this a high score. I'm giving this a 5. Yeah, I'm going with a 6, because I, I, I was going to go with actually like a lower with a 4, but then I love the Nebula or the, the evil Nebula from 2014 stuff, so that kind of worked for me. But yeah, I just felt like it was just the complete opposite of what, you know, the Thanos we saw in Infinity War. And Infinity War had such a high score from us because of Thanos' performance and his what he wanted and everything centering around, centering around him. But in this case, they completely take him out of the picture for the first half of the movie. And then you're kind of thinking like, okay, so 
there's no villain right now, and then you mentioned time is the villain, and I get that concept, but it just feels like totally lacking. And that sucks because you got all these great heroes, and we give this perfect ten score on the heroes, but it's like totally lacking in the villains, which I think, I don't know, I think Infinity War did it better with the villain, obviously, to have the balance of the strength of the heroes and the villains. This one is just almost all about the heroes. Um, but, you know, and then whenever Thanos would talk, it just felt like a rehash of what he was already saying and what he said before in the previous movie, so there was nothing really new, so his motivation really hadn't changed, and then at the end, he's like, I'm just gonna, you know, totally obliterate every molecule of this universe and start anew, and I was like, oh, okay, it's just more of the same, you know, him being an asshole and being an egotistical whatever and thinking he's doing the right thing and blah, 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 but, um... Yeah, it was just totally lacking, so I give it a 6. It was cool to see some of the characters that had already died in Infinity War, like Ebony Maw and all them, but they ended up just getting, you know, dusted away at the end anyway. Um, kind of unfortunate, man, because I felt like, I don't know, it, it, again, the way you described it, they booked themselves into a corner, even though even the writers admitted that, but when you book yourself into a corner like this, uh, it's tough, because you, you, certain things can only play out a certain way, and that's kind of how they had to play out Thanos. Um, but it was shocking to see him get, you know, axed in the first 15 minutes, but then, you know, having the, like, oh, no villain in the background lingering really hurt some of the, uh, the aspects of the movie, I felt. Certainly, and in talking about the story, I think we talk so much about the heroes that with the story, I just really kind of want to focus on, uh, the, t- the time heist itself, and I really love heist movies, if you go back and you listen to uh, my Breaking Bad podcast that I do with Kevin Ford, one of the things that I talked about in the Season 5 episode, there is a specific episode of Breaking Bad where they do a heist. And what I love so much about those kinds of movies are there is this idea that it is impossible. The plan that they are about to execute is impossible. So you have a group of characters literally sitting around and talking about how they are going to execute the heist and how they are going to get away with whatever they get, they get away with. I love those kinds of scenes. I think if you are looking for a really great example of a heist movie, Ocean's Eleven is probably peak heist movie. I think that movie is fantastically well executed. You can go listen to Ben Phillips and Matt Waters. Go talk, listen, they talked about it in There Will Be Movies. It's so great, and I love this scene as well, when they talk about how they are going to execute this time heist, and the fu- the funny moments where Rocket is yelling at Ant-Man, and Ant-Man talks about not wanting to go to Voromir, and it's, it's so great. And even just the way that they divide it up, and they go to these various different times, and you see Hulk seeing his past self just smashing things, and those moments with Peggy, and with Steve, and with Tony, and his father, and you even get the great Stan Lee cameo as part of uh, this time heist. And there's just so many of those great moments. And we talked about how this movie, it stands on its own as a story. They live and they dwell in this grief that harkens back to a TV show like The Leftovers in so many ways. And that's what they do for the first hour. And then it becomes a time heist movie where you have Alan Silvestri doing the score and they are making literal mentions back to Back to the Future. And you have Karen Gillian, who was once on Doctor Who. So they are able to do all of this and it's able to exist on its own. And yet they are still able to harken back to so many 
of the previous MCU movies. They literally bring back the kid actor from Iron Man 3 to stand in at the funeral. They have the moments where they hearken back to the first Iron Man when he says, I am Iron Man. And you have Captain America hearkening back to Winter Soldier and the elevator and the Avengers with that terrible suit and Avengers uh, with Thor and Thor the Dark World. And they're able to weave this in in such a natural way and they're, they're able to maintain the stakes of this world still so well. And Brian, I know that you are are you are a fan of Rise of Skywalker. You are the only you are the only person on this website who is a fan of that movie. And I cannot help but compare how well Avengers Endgame is able to execute these moments and how every time Star Wars Rise of Skywalker tried to do the same thing, it just felt so hollow. So almost retroactively, I feel so comfortable giving this a 10 because I think this finale, even though it's not a TV finale, this did what Rise of Skywalker and the Game of Thrones final season just utterly failed to do. Uh, I get what you're saying, and I love Rise of Skywalker, and I'm going to stick with my guns on that one, but some of those moments did have a you know emotional payoff for me in Rise of Skywalker, I'll just say that. But the weird thing is, is that the way I kind of perceive this in my head is like, you show this movie to like someone who's not really familiar with the whole storyline of the MCU, a lot of these moments mean nothing to them. Totally irrelevant, right? So for me, I feel like, I don't know, some of the best stories in the MCU are the ones that stand on their own. And I don't see this one... There's no way it kind of stands on its own because it relies too much on the other movies. So when you look at something like Black Panther, I think Black Panther overall has the better story because it kind of stands on its own. This one just relies on all these different moments from all the different movies that you would not know otherwise if you weren't a fan of the movies, right? So for me, it feels like, yeah, it's a lot of fan service and all these great moments for the fans. But then again, it's like you're sacrificing a lot of these fan service moments for stuff that would just not fly with the casual audience so that you know i could only imagine to some of the people watching this who have no idea and only since maybe some of the movies and just don't understand any of what's going on of these references and these callbacks or whatever so to me it's like i think that has to you know some of these movies have to kind of stand on their own and this can't really stand on its own unless you watch all these other movies so for me i'm gonna have to give it an eight out of ten i mean it's got amazing callbacks and despite how much i love all these great moments it's just you know you can't you can't just, you know, show this to someone who's a casual fan and for them to understand it and have it mean the same thing. It's not going to mean the same thing as to what it means to us because we've invested all the time. So that's, to me, the difference because sometimes, I don't know, like, I feel like it just relied so much on what we know, but, you know, it's unfortunate for all these people who kind of felt like, okay, this is like an event movie and I have to see this movie because it's like a movie uh, of the decade kind of thing and people go watch this movie and then it won't connect with some of these moments because they have no idea what's going on because they didn't see the other movies so that's kind of where I'm at on that and it, I know it's kind of divisive and I know that they have this thing where it's like well we're just we're aiming for the fans and you know the fans are the diehards anyway and they, they know what's going on and blah 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 but you know just if I were to only just say watch maybe like Avengers 1 and like Age of Ultron you know what I mean and just the Avengers movies themselves they would still have these cool moments that call back, but then I would just not understand what's going on with the Thor stuff or the Doctor Strange stuff or any of that stuff. You know what I mean? I certainly understand where you're coming from, and I think that the way that this just is able to pay so many things off, it certainly is not a movie that necessarily stands on its own 
as far as understanding everything, but I think it stands on its own in the way that it is just able to pay off these moments in a more natural and engaging way that still forwards the stories of the characters. And that's that's why I appreciate it so much of what this movie was able to do on, on the story level. And in thinking about the technical category, I don't think the Russos are particularly great at shooting action scenes. I think the way they shot the action scene at the end of the Endgame is probably the best they've ever been able to do. reason that I'm giving this a high score, I'm giving this a 9, is because I think it's down to the editing. I think this movie should have been nominated for Best Editing for the Academy Awards. And I'm not joking, I'm not being sarcastic. I think the pacing of this movie, and Infinity War as a matter of fact, I think are so well done. You do not feel the fact that this movie is three hours. This movie zips by. I feel the same way about Infinity War. And in fact, I can make the argument that this movie is a better version of it because it is able to really slow things down in some cases and, uh, you know, again, linger in some of the sadness. But I, I, I just give so much credit to the editors. I think they did a fantastic and marvelous job. And I think Alan Silvestri's score, again, I think this is some of the best uh, music that you will ever see in some of these movies. And for all those reasons, I feel really comfortable giving this a nine. Again, there's, there's still some of the same visual palette problems that other MCU movies have. So I'm not willing to give this a 10, but because of the pacing, because of the score, and because they're just able to weave all these moments so well together. And I still think the way that Thanos looks is still pretty remarkable. I give this a nine. Um, I'm going to go with an 8, because despite how cool everything looked and the usual MCU palette and everything, it was just weird, because, like, Infinity War, like, especially the beginning when they had the attack on New York in the beginning of Infinity War, it had this scale with all these people in the as extras in the background and, like, the city, and you see, like, the bridge and the bus, like, the bus scene with the kids, but in, in Endgame, everything kind of feels scaled down, you know what I mean? Like... We go to a planet with Thanos is at the beginning. There's no one else on the planet except Thanos, right? And then when we just get every, everyone in the ship, and then you see the, the shots of them five years later, and you see, like, everything's empty, right? And then you see, like, maybe, like, five people in the group therapy session, right? So this whole, I don't know, just it seems like they just didn't choose to shoot mass groups of people other than the Avengers themselves. And then everything kind of felt like an enclosed set, you know what I mean? It was like, we're going from the Avengers uh Avengers Tower, or not Tower, but Avengers HQ, and then we're going to go to Tony's farm, where everything is secluded, and then we're going to go back, and then the only time you see it, like, that big scale again of, like, uh, a mass scale of people is when they go back to New York in 2012, where you see the attack on New York again from the different perspective, and you see all those people, and then, but then it's like when they go back to the current timeline, everything is scaled down again, and even the battle feels really scaled down, despite it being huge, and all those characters in it, like, it's weird what they did with the coloring, because as soon as they drop the bombs, it's almost as if it changes the atmosphere, and everything becomes, like, dark and gloomy and cloudy, and I, I guess that's because of all the smoke in the sky, but then it, it just almost as if it, they, they completely changed the the scenery, completely, from what it, what it was, like, a minute ago, because of the bombing, and then everything just looked like a giant set from there on in. So that kind of felt kind of weird, it didn't feel like... It didn't feel like the massive scale of the battle at the end of Infinity War. So I felt like they kind of took a step down in terms of the set and the effects in this movie. But I do feel like it's Alan Silvestri's best score, even better than Back to the Future. 
because of incorporating all these different themes and the different characters, and then just like the, like I mentioned, teasing the theme of Tony's funeral song at the beginning of the movie and then bringing it at the end. But that was a nice you know little moment right there with the music, and then just you know all the little stuff, and then just the way that they approached that he approached the soundtrack and those little depressing moments, and then the moments where. Um, he brings the music back to the original music from when uh, Captain America vs. Avenger when he's going in the ice and then you see him have that dance in the end they play the original music from there so I thought that in terms of the score this is probably the best score probably top three of all the MCU movies maybe the I would say maybe Black Panther's score is slightly better than all of them that's because it's a little hip-hop-ish or whatnot but I think this is probably Alan Silvestri's finest moment you know what I mean because everything just feels like coming together and then I really loved the, the end credits because uh, they mentioned this. I forget which interview, but it was like a Kevin Smith interview with the writers. But it's ex- it's the way that they did Star Trek VI: Undiscovered Country, where it was the final movie for the original crew, so they had their signatures as they for their final salute. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm glad they did that at the end of this movie as well. Yeah, I think that the end credits are such a great feature of this, and again, I think even the score to the end credits is so great. And I would love to have been in the negotiations uh, as the agents were negotiating on behalf of their clients because William Hurt is in this movie for like 30 seconds and he gets his own like title card. So it's 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 really fascinating to me just who is able to do that and some and who isn't. Natalie Portman again, technically not even in the movie, gets her own as well. So uh, they have great agents and good on them for representing their clients well. Yeah, considering William Hurt is probably going to be the next major villain in the next 10 years and it kind of made it seem like he's not coming back but yeah red hulk baby he's coming all right let's talk about the legacy of this movie i think look it made 2.7 billion dollars it is probably going to be the number one movie for all time for quite some time i count any avatar sequels making more than avengers endgame unless they're by some miracle who even knows what the theater industry is going to look like when COVID 19 eventually passes through but the fact that this movie was so well done and i hate comparing it to the other big finales of 2019 but i think this very simply was one of the best endings that we have seen from these big franchises compared to game of thrones compared to rise of skywalker I will always think back on Avengers Endgame in a very fond way. Not only because of the movie itself, but because of the crowd responses. I mean, I literally sat in a theater, Captain America, that hammer came to him, and someone literally shouted, holy shit. And that is a moment that I will never forget as long as I live, because it felt like I was in an audience for a wrestling show, and that you do not get that at a lot of other movies. And quite frankly, you wouldn't, and you shouldn't. But the fact that everybody was popping for the moments, and there was laughter there was crying at so many moments and and goosebumps when all of the people are coming back through the holes it, this movie was such an incredible theatrical experience and i think that this is the this is the mcu movie that i probably watched the most i probably watched this movie at least half a dozen if not eight times over the course of the last year because it is one of the most emotionally cathartic movies that i have ever seen and for all those reasons i'm also giving this a 10 10 as well man i mean to end it all after two you know at the first group of uh, phases i mean 2018 i can't forget the number i'll say 19 i'm probably wrong even if you include black widow it is technically phase three but 
Um, yeah, just an epic journey that all starts with Iron Man. It ends with Iron Man. It's perfect, and there's all these great moments coming full circle, like we mentioned. The money, the, the feeling in the theater. God, that theater was electric that night. That's one of those nights that I'll never forget in a fucking movie theater, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, like, just that emotion, everyone leaving the theater and everyone looking at each other, and just, it felt like we were all unified in this moment, and I, I still feel like that moment when Cap lifts the hammer. I don't know. It just gives me hope for the future in general. It gives me great positive feelings, so I'm glad that the movie and at a time like this can do that for, for me, especially in, in, in a time like this, so... Yeah, it it gives all the great feelings, and it made all the money in the world, and it deserved it. And it's going to be tough, man, because, again, to get to this moment for all the the success that this movie has and it deserves, it's going to be hard to build up again, man. So it's going to be tough, and they're going to need something to draw you in to, the, to another story for ten years to get that big payoff at the end of whatever they're planning. So Kevin Feige's got a lot of pressure on his back right now. Um, we'll see how it goes, man. Maybe this break... This extra little break kind of makes, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, as I've mentioned before. So this little break in between the MCU movies might actually help. They will never, ever, ever, ever be able to recapture this again. And I think they're going to try. And I think you are going to see some big MCU movies and you're probably going to see some really good MCU movies. But I don't think they're ever going to be able to capture this feeling again. And it is a feeling that is so specific because I don't think this is the best MCU movie. I would put Black Panther, I would put the the original Avengers movie above this. And I think if you talk to other people, they would certainly have their favorites, but they're never going to be able to recapture this feeling again. And it is a feeling that you really have to put the work in and they put the work in. And that's why I gave this movie my total score a 44. Mine's a 42, and I'm one of those people that kind of likes Infinity War a little more. You mentioned how you, you felt like this should have been nominated for Best Editing. I really felt like, you know, Infinity War should have gotten nominated for Best Editing, but that's just kind of like the difference, you know, slight differences in subjective opinion, but we're pretty much on the same page, you know what I mean? The, the lack of a villain really hurts, but that's just the way that the story kind of wrote itself pretty much based on the events of the ending of Infinity War, so... So the total score is indeed an 86, and this will be the final movie to go into our superhero pantheon, and it joins a number of other MCU movies, including the Avengers, including Captain America Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, Guardians of the Galaxy, the first Iron Man, Black Panther, so many movies from the MCU. This is certainly not my favorite superhero movie of all time. I think that will continue to be the Dark Knight for as as long as I can think of, but I think this movie is incredible for what it was able to do. The the fact that Infinity War and Endgame to me were so successful, it is such a miracle to me. And I'm really glad that we we were able to talk about these two movies in such depth. I mean, Brian, this is undoubtedly going to be our longest podcast ever. We are at one hour and 45 minutes in, and I think it speaks to the fact that there were so many characters and there was so much to talk about. All deserving as well. Like, it's, I mean, it's 11, it's 11 years of buildup, you know what I mean? It, it, you got to take your time, you know what I mean? And we love all these characters so much, so it's... It's it's a it's a thing of joy to talk about and it's a nice reflection and especially now and I keep mentioning this feeling of now like this is a type of movie that'll give you some something to root for in life I think some hope 
for the journey that we're on right now and the ending coming hopefully soon, but I feel like an endgame type moment is coming for all of us in a good way. All right, so I have some burning questions for all four of us to answer. But Brian, just for you and I, we are going to end with kind of one question that has five parts to it. So I want you to be brief, Brian, but I want you to go over the following. Your favorite character, your favorite image, the moment that made you laugh the most, the moment that made you cry the most, and your favorite quote. Okay, character, I got to go with Captain America. I did not expect anything from him in that first movie, and Chris Evans blew me away, um, totally turned me around on the character, and he made the whole world love him as that character, and he made Captain America relevant. And, you know, credit to Chris Evans and his performance in all these different movies as Cap. Uh, image, I got to go with him getting the, the hammer, man, because it's A, I mean, it's it's a tease from Age of Ultron, and a nice little tease, and B, it makes it even more special because it tells it tells the audience that he's worthy. He could be a king of Asgard, and he chooses not to. He chooses to be a hero instead, kind of thing. You know what I mean? So that moment, it means so much, you know, in terms of storytelling, but also in terms of character. And I think that's why people were like, "Holy shit, he's got he's got Mjolnir. He's got the hammer." And that just tells you everything you know about that character, and that he's even probably even more worthy than Thor himself. So. Biggest laugh, man, there's so many moments, but for some reason, all my laughs are attributed to the Hulk. Even the first Avengers movie, when he punches Thor, and then he does that thing to Loki, and then even the stuff in Ragnarok. So it, for me, it's hard to pick one specific moment that's the funniest, but just in general, I think the way that they made Hulk a lovable, funny character and having all these funny moments. Um, Hulk smash, Hulk not smash, you know what I mean? Just like stuff like that. Um, so I'll just go with Hulk in general as my favorite laughable, even more stuff than the stuff with Ant-Man and Luis and like him telling all those funny stories. I think the way they approach Hulk in the series, they made him so funny and lovable. Um, part that made me cry, God, so many moments in Endgame, man. Uh, from Peter seeing, uh, Ned again for after five years and Ned just started crying. That gets me all the time. Of course, Tony's death, um, you know, Tony meets his father again. I mean, Thor and his mom, so many, so many moments, but, um, I don't know, I guess the one that I guess really gets to me is when Peter and, and, um, Tony hug, man, because, like, God, that's another moment that they tease, right, and they finally build up to it, and he hugs them, and then, especially in my theater, I heard all the, all the females just go, oh, and then this collective moment of, like, sobbing, you know what I mean? Because that moment when he dusts away in Infinity War was so powerful and, and such a crazy visual to see. You know what I mean? And then, quote, I guess it's I could do this all day. I mean, to me, that just encap, you know, encapsulates the character, encapsulates, <coughs> excuse me, the, the, the whole character of Captain America and what he's about and how he just doesn't stay down and no matter what, in, his, in his, the last breath in his body, he's going to fight for what's right until the end. And then he does it. And everyone comes supporting him at the end, and he finally gets to see the line Avengers assemble. So that, you know, to me, I can do this all day. They even make fun of it to the point where it's such a known thing about Captain America that he can do this all day. So I'm going to go with that. So I think I'm going to surprise you with my favorite character. And I'm talking about favorite character within the context of this specific movie I'm going to talk, I'm going to say Ant-Man. I really appreciated the performance that Paul Rudd gives and again, I th- I appreciate the arc of so many of these individuals, 
but there's just something about that moment that I think uh, worked out so tremendously well. Uh, the other thing that I want to do is talk about uh, when it comes to favorite image. I think that that image of just literally all the Avengers being there, and that's also definitely the cry moment as well, because it's, it's an, again, it's emotionally cathartic to have all of these characters, and, you know, I still get goosebumps just watching that movie, and just watching this, and watching it all develop, and my favorite laugh is when Captain America says, that is, that is America's ass, I think that is just a, a genuinely great cathartic moment for a, for a completely different reason, and my favorite quote is from this movie is going to be whatever it takes because I think it's so symbolic of of the way that we're kind of living right now and maybe it's because we're in this moment but whatever it takes can take on so many connotations and right now whatever it takes means sitting our asses at home so that we don't make ourselves sick and we don't make other people sick so that is the quote that is uh, kind of sticking with me right now well Brian we have done about two hours but we're not done yet because we are about to go to part two of our podcast as we are going to be welcoming in Ben Phillips and Matt Waters. And we're going to be getting to that particular part of the conversation. So without any further ado, let's first hear from Tony Stark in that voiceover. And then let's get to the second half of our podcast. So I thought I'd probably better record a little greeting in the case of an untimely death on my part. I mean, not that... Death at any time is an untimely. This time travel thing that we're going to try and pull off tomorrow, it's, it's, it's got me scratching my head about the survivability of a home. That's the thing. And again, that's the hero gig. Part of the journey is the end. What am I even tripping for? Everything's going to work out exactly the way it's supposed to. I love you 3,000. Why do I have to be Mike Thomas and he gets to talk to Manhattan? Sorry, go. <laughs> there, there's your intro. <laughs> there is my intro. Um, all right. Okay. Joining us on the line right now are two other Enter the Real World co-hosts. Uh, in the past, we've done official crossovers, but tonight they are just guests on the season finale of the Superhero Pantheon. They have hosted such podcast series as Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey, There Will Be Movies, Secret Agent Men, and now they are hosting Nothing Ever Ends. How ironic we promote this podcast on this, our final episode of season two, thus proving that this at least ends. Uh, You can find them on Twitter at Matt C. Waters and N-Q-U-O-I-D, respectively. It is Matt Waters and Ben Phillips, Gentlemen, we'll start with Matt. How are you doing? Uh, I'm glum now because you devastated me to my core before we started. But other than that, uh, as good as one can be in these lockdowny times, you know, we brought you onto the website and now we must bid you adieu. That's right. You don't get any follow-up podcasts. You're just gone. Bye. Wow. That's, <laughs> I mean, I know I said it's something very mean before this podcast, but I had no idea that I had crossed the line that badly. Ah, well, you know, I have all the passwords and no one else does, so. Benjamin, how's it going? It's going all right. <laughs> Good contrast. Good. <laughs> this is, uh, this is great podcasting. So, gentlemen, what we are going to do tonight is we are going to compare and contrast which country has handled COVID-19 worse? Ben, make your case. I mean, our leader did not advocate for people injecting bleach into themselves. So, 
I'm, I'm just I'm just gonna say easy win there for the UK. Checkmate. <laughs> I mean, you literally won the debate in like three seconds. You really are the Doctor Manhattan of Enter the Real World, Ben. That's all I can say. I mean, I could have also said fifty thousand deaths, but that would get a bit morbid. Yeah. Yes. So, and I do want to point out that we did we have done a a um a pool the last couple of years where we have predicted the deaths of prominent MCU <laughs> members, and it feels like if we had if we were somehow doing that this year, it feels like it would be really bad taste. Yeah, and also we're really bad at resolving those. I feel we've somehow ended up with two draws. <laughs> yeah, but they've also done their part of the deal, but we haven't done ours yet. Shut the fuck uh, up. That, oh. Yes. Oh, believe me, that was going to come up, Matt Waters. Believe me, we did our end of the bargain, and yet you sit here and you haven't done yours. It's, so... not, it's not Christmas. It wouldn't be appropriate to do the Star Wars Christmas special when it's not Christmas time. Well, guess what, Matt? Where was it last Christmas, huh? Uh, ben? One second. What, what, what did come out at Christmas? <laughs> what, what episode of the podcast did we unload in Christmas? Uh, you were too. You were too busy doing your little hoity-toity. Mm. There will be movie projects where you were talking about the twenty-five best films of the two thousands, and you didn't. And you just had to review Shaun of the Dead over Hot Fuzz. Hey, 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 Ben, back me up. Yeah. Who Matt, Matt did advocate very heavily for us to do Hot Fuzz over Shaun of the Dead. Thank you. I mean, I guess Shaun of the Dead is more relevant because of that gift that has just been floating around recently as we are all going to wait at the Winchester for all this to blow over, right? Uh, we have to cover such important Christmas movies as Inglorious Bastards and The Hurt Locker. And Matt Waters doesn't even like war movies or Tarantino movies. That's true. That's true, and that was... Still preferable to the Star Wars Christmas special. So there you go. Uh, we'll do, we'll do it this Christmas, I promise. I'm going to hold you to it. If you're not, then I'm going to take all the passwords and your podcasts are going to go away. Hmm. Okay. I would like to say that Brian is still here. Brian has just been very quiet, but Brian is still here. Brian's polite. I'm kind of digging it all in, and I'm trying to remember the bets we made in the last couple of years, and I'm trying to, con- I don't know, I'm getting confused with the bets that I always make that are usually the crazy sports bets that me leaving Vegas like an extra 200 bucks. Uh, but that's got nothing to do with my streak going on with this podcast bet, I guess. So We're really terrible at doing this, so we will not be doing it this year. But something that we do have to do this year is... One of the best parts of the last two years is coalescing a list of all of the MCU movies. And since this is our season finale and we have all of the quote-unquote Infinity Saga at our feet, we can watch them all multiple times at this point. I think it is time to unveil our master list, the real world's official rankings of the Infinity Saga. And Ben Phillips loves spreadsheets. He does. He does not know how to edit podcasts. But he does not do spreadsheets. So I'm going to turn the show over now to Ben Phillips to talk about this MCU master list. Yes. So interestingly, most of the changes we've had this year come in the bottom half of the list. Like the top 12 is pretty much unchanged apart from one new entry near the top. But we'll talk about that later on. But coming in at number 23, we have Iron Man 2 down one spot from last time then number 22 incredible hulk also down one spot which means up two places incredibly is thor the dark world i'm not sure what's happened so i'm gonna i'm gonna speak on this because i feel like avengers endgame actually has retroactively made thor the dark world a little bit better and that's why i put it a couple slots higher now 
you might think to yourself, can one movie make another better? Not really, but I think that this movie, I think Avengers Endgame has enhanced certain aspects of the Dark World. It's still not very good, but I I am the one who definitely put it up higher on my list than in past years. I, I just think Iron Man 2 is very bad at this point. It's I think it's the worst of the MCU. Uh, I noticed that change too. Like, I feel like the way that the writers kind of like went on those interviews, especially that Kevin Smith interview that I heard, you know, kind of being like, yeah, we wrote Thor 2. We feel bad the way it came out. So this was kind of our way of saying, okay, we're going to fix some of the things there. And then obviously Fridging Frigga, that come that came that came back and kind of like bit him in the ass a little bit and they were able to fix that this time around so at least they got to say goodbye to the character properly so that that probably is why Jerome kind of changed his stance on it I think I left mine in the same spot almost just uh, no change as much but uh, you know look Thor to Dark World I don't know man just watch some of it not all of it I guess just watch the good stuff and then uh, just watch the parts from Endgame and kind of go back and put it all together but don't watch the whole thing I think because uh, some of that Malachi stuff is just a uh, waste of your time. Yeah, I think there's some good visuals in Thor: The Dark World, but it's definitely it's definitely at the bottom of the list for a reason. I think it's it, an interesting one in that it's rumored that Kevin Feige took on a lot of the reshoots for it as well. Like it's the one movie that he put his authorial stamp on. I don't know if that's because behind the scenes director problems, which definitely seem like they kind of plagued that movie from the very beginning, but. I know for a fact Matt Waters wants to talk about the uh, number 22 movie and why it's not in last place. What happened? When did we as a society let the Incredible Hulk off the hook? Jerome? I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying... It kind of seems like you are because I think you named like five movies you think are worse than it and I think that's categorically empirically false. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. No, maybe I need to do just a thorough rewatch of the MCU and just really assess where Hulk lands. But I don't know. I, I know that you guys have made fun of it and you make fun of a very specific moment in the movie. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm an Ed Norton mark. I mean, that might be the reason why that's the case. But I don't feel like I'm out of line by suggesting that Hulk, it's still not great. Do you know where Hulk landed? He landed in Harlem and it looked <laughs> fucking awful. And, yeah, it was a very bad ending to an otherwise uh, middling to bad movie. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson almost became the leader uh, and then didn't. Yeah, it's not good. I know Mike had his big rant about how the first 20 minutes are genuinely amazing, but there are more than 20 minutes of Age of Ultron that are amazing, and we're not having this argument for that. So what are we doing here? Like, obviously The Incredible Hulk is worse than... Far From Home and Ant-Man and several other movies that I think have somehow ended up below Incredible Hulk, or have they not in the end? I don't know. Well, Jerome, you put it above several of those anyway. Ben, you must intervene. I must intervene. Well, so the movies that that Jerome had belief it are Iron Man 2, Thor The Dark World, I will, I will maybe accept the argument for the first two, but sorry, keep going. Avengers Age of Ultron... Iron Man 3, which is the true travesty of well, this obviously, obviously, we ignore that argument. It's in the Pantheon. But Age of Ultron, for all the like wonky shit that's going on, the party, the farm, the dream sequences, all amazing stuff. So I, I, I despair. I, I, getting kicked into a tree is not enough to, to raise that movie up, in my opinion. It is the single greatest moment in the MCU, though. Yes, 
It was Ben's birthday present from the from the website. <laughs> yeah, uh, at number twenty, we have Ant Man of the Wasp down one spot from last year. So a year has not been kind to that movie. And then at number nineteen, our first new entry, Spider Man Far From Home, a movie that has not landed very well with any of us from the looks of it. Nah, just missing so, uh, a certain something from Homecoming. I think uh, I I liked certain aspects of it an awful lot. Um, but and you know Jake Gyllenhaal being insane is always fun, but just overall just missing that little cohesive glue that made the first one really good so i was having microphone trouble i was trying to respond to what matt was saying about the incredible hulk so i'm just going to go back to that for a second and then we can we can move on because this is a pretty dumb argument so um i i think that where i'm going to concede is i probably should have considered avengers age of ultron given the moments in the end game if i'm going to make the argument that it redeemed thor the dark world i do have to be consistent and say that maybe it did the same thing for ultron because it does pay off a couple of significant moments from that film as well so perhaps that is something that i should have considered more as i put the lists together i think the biggest issue that i have with these lists is that i tend to take the top of the list much more seriously than the bottom and the bottom it's just well it doesn't really matter where the movies go but i think i should have made the argument uh, i should have put avengers age of ultron ahead so i, I will concede that point to you matt waters thank you you may now speak on far from uh, home if you want <laughs> So I think the biggest problem with Far From Home is that it feels more like an epilogue to Tony Stark's life than it does a Spider-Man movie, and I think that's fundamentally where I come to so- come down so hard on it. Jake Gyllenhaal is having tremendous fun. I, there is a great scene between Peter Parker and MK, but this movie in so many ways just feels like an epilogue. Like, does it feel like its own story, and that's what's really unfortunate. Yeah, I feel like it should have been in Europe now thinking about it because it, it really takes away from the whole neighborhood spider-man thing it probably should have taken place in new york and built around more of the the characters that we are you know know and you know build on the the mythos and you know more maybe more of the sinister six and all that kind of thing putting it in europe kind of threw things out of it was like what's going on here what's the big overall plot going on i felt and it was just you know they threw in the elementals in there and it was just like you know winks and nods to some of the other you know, Marvel characters, you know, like the the Frost guy or whatever. So I get it. I get what they were trying to do, but uh, it kind of took away from that, you know, neighborhood Spider-Man kind of feel. And he, you know, and it was it's messed up because, like, they, they teased the cool suit and then they gave us, like, this newer kind of other suit. But, yeah, I wanted more of that ultimate uh, suit from uh, the Infinity War saga. But we didn't get that. But it is what it is. And, uh, you know, it, it feels like there was some missed opportunities there and I felt like, Sony rushed it, and they wanted the timing to be right off the back of, uh, you know, Endgame, and that's what happens when you rush it. Europe does suck, to be fair. I mean, I, I can understand why they want to set the movie in Europe, if only because there have been so many Spider-Man movies over the last 20 years, and you want to do something different when you're coming into, well, what movie is that now, the ninth Spider-Man movie in 20 years? Like, it's an insane n- number to be at. But for me, the biggest failing of the movie is the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal's villain was just less interesting than Michael Keaton as Vulture. Like, you get one of the most sympathetic or at least empathetic villains uh, in terms of what his ultimate goals are with the Vulture. And then Jake Gyllenhaal is just crazy scientist who wants to get revenge on Tony Stark and gets a little bit murder happy at the end. And it's just kind of a letdown. And 
that's such a shame considering Jay Gyllenhaal has got this great manic energy for so much of the performance that probably could have been put to better use in different ways. I think that one of the biggest issues continues to be that this is another villain that is also related to Tony Stark and not necessarily to Peter Parker. And I think in some ways the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans have aged well and some they haven't. But the thing that I appreciate about all three of them for as weird and bad as three is is that all of the villains still have a connection to peter parker and that's something that i think we need to get back to in spider-man 3 agreed all right so at number 18 ant-man down one spot from last year so the ant-man movies are suffering quite a bit uh, but what isn't suffering is at number 17 thor up two spots so we've also had a critical reevaluation on the first four movie but disappointingly down one spot is avengers age of ultron at number 16 up one spot at number 15 doctor strange Another movie from last year that's kind of suffered, uh, we've given a bit of hindsight, is Captain Marvel at number 14. And in recognition for that, number 13, Guns of Galaxy Volume 2, has gone up one spot. So any comments on any of those? Uh, Captain Marvel, I feel it's a good first effort, right? We just we just need to build on those characters. We need the more mature Carol Danvers with the short hair that's really confident and really kicking ass at the end of Endgame. And uh, the whole confusion about filming it out of order doing Endgame first and then filming Captain Marvel. I don't know if they should have done that, but again, you're dealing with a lot of people in a different lot of schedules and timing and everything, so I get that, but I think it kind of screwed up the character a little bit. Um, they kind of went backwards a little bit, but you know, what I see in the Car- in the Carol Danvers at the end of Endgame, give me that, give me the leader. So build from that, and I hope a sequel to Captain Marvel is not this thing where we set it in the past again, because I feel like we're just going to do that. with We're doing that again with Black Widow coming out. Um, kind of let's get away from that. Let's kind of build towards the future because I feel like we're trying to fill in these gaps that, you know, do we really need fill in all these gaps in the past? Can we just go forward now? So that's kind of what I wanted to Captain Marvel too. I think they will 100% set it in the past again. I would say that like I was really enthusiastic about the character to be joining the MCU throughout the movie. Like I think it's a it's a wonderful character to have to play with in in the big toy box, and then her showing up in Endgame proves that obviously, but. I think the film itself, like, I want to like it more than I do, because I'm a liberal snowflake, so yay women. I would like something a little bit stronger next time out. It felt very Marvel on autopilot, save for a couple of little moments. Yeah, I I am incredibly stoked that she's here, and I want to see her have meaningful scenes with these other MCU characters going forward, because, I mean, like... You know, we know the practicality of Endgame is a lot of these actors were on the set for, like, two days and, like, weren't actually standing next to each other a lot of the time and that kind of thing. I want to see her have real scenes with with whatever the future Avengers team looks like. Um, But, yeah, the movie itself, like, fine, but not doing anything special, I would say. I would agree. I still put it as, like, right down the middle for me. I think it is perfect in that way in that... It is very much a middle-of-the-road Marvel movie, and that's why it's in the middle of the road for the rankings, too. And I think where this movie suffers so much is that once you really separate this from the hype, once you separate it from the fact 
that this movie is not coming out on International Women's Day and Avengers Endgame is not coming out in two months and you get away from a lot of the excitement of the 90s nostalgia that I think a lot of the movie just uh, it doesn't hold up, unfortunately. And you could definitely see that there are a lot of micro problems with, you know, the selection of some of the needle drops. And then there's some macro problems in that we don't really know who the villain is until towards the very end. And I think that this movie does have uh, a lot of issues, but it still did make a billion dollars and there's a lot of success to build off of. And I don't know if the directors, the fact that the directors are not coming back for the sequel, I don't know if that really matters, but what I'm hopeful for is that the next person or people that they select to take on the Captain Marvel universe uh, is is somebody who uh, definitely has more of a visual sensibility because I think the thing that Marvel overall needs to do is they need a much better visual palette. And I think Captain Marvel is very representative of that, especially if they stay and go into the cosmic realm because that is definitely an area where they can be more colorful as Thor Ragnarok and both Guardians of the Galaxy uh, movies have proved. I, I guess a, an addendum to this is the three movies that have gone up have also had interesting directors either join or rejoin the projects that are coming up next for them as in you've got james gunn coming back for guns galaxy volume three you've got sam raimi joining the car uh, joining the director's chair for doctor strange 2 and you've got taika watiti coming back to do thor 4 has that kind of improved these movies in our minds or are you just more excited to see where the next movies in those franchises go i don't know i think if you ask me to do this list again next week i might have a slightly different ranking for you just these sort of ruminate around in my head quite a lot i think i have a pretty set idea about what my sort of top five and bottom five are but the middle of this list i could flip them one or two slots constantly as you know because i send you the list and then i update it two minutes later yeah i'm pretty excited for taika because i don't know he took a franchise that pretty much everyone thought was going to end with the character and uh with thor ending and endgame or something like that and then just re- resurrecting the character a year before all that starts up and it's just like man we can't get rid of him now he's so much more interesting so mm. uh, and the fact that he's or the fact that Taika just won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, I think that just shows, like, he's a great writer. You know what I mean? He was a great writer all this time, and people didn't really pick up on him because he was a small-budget, dark kind of comedy kind of guy that kind of adapted, and then all of a sudden, you know, people love uh, what we do in the shadows, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people I think people were kind of, like, undervaluing him, and especially now that you see his true value. Like, I'm very excited what he's going to do. From, like, to the idea of... Uh, Oscar-winning writer doing a fourth installment of a of a car of a comic book franchise. You know what I mean? Like that's so outrageous to me in my head, but it just makes sense because he's in control of the character and the character is really popular again, and he resurrected it. So I'm all I'm all in on Taika, man. And if he wants to maybe do an Avengers movie, maybe give it to him because maybe he can just make it so lighthearted. We've had these two really dark Avengers movies compared to like some of the lightheartedness that was in probably in the first Avengers movie. I think he can kind of bring that out. So. I'm excited for him, man. So I'm excited for the sequel and what he can bring. And not just, you know, hopefully Thor movies, you know, maybe just give him a little more to do. Maybe give him a series to do. One of the things that I'm curious about with Taika Waititi is that he seems so firmly implanted in Disney now. And he's involved in different ways at Disney because obviously he did Thor Ragnarok. And you look at he has directed episodes of the TV show What We Do in the Shadows. And that's, of course, airing on FX, which is owned by Disney. He directed the season finale of The Mandalorian last year. I believe he is slated to... Do, I, I don't know if this if he's directing in the season two, but 
he's got an Academy Award now. I have to wonder if Taika Waititi has more power. Perhaps the fact that he got Natalie Portman to come back when I never would have believed that that would have ever been possible after what happened with Patty Jenkins. So I think that speaks to the power that Taika Waititi has. And the fact that you have an actor who played Batman is now just going to be a villain in the fourth Thor movie. I think that also speaks to something as well. And I'm not sure if it makes the first two Thor movies better, but the more that I ruminate on Thor Ragnarok, the more that I love that movie specifically, because it's just, it's so much fun. And I think even comparing it to some of the most recent 2019 releases, I think Thor Ragnarok is really starting to hold up in my mind. And as far as uh, some of the other movies, I mean, I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I think it's another movie that is almost retroactively helped uh, by the Avengers movies, just with some of the things that they've done with Nebula and Gamora. But man, I, this is something that we talked about earlier, but it it almost seems like the Russos secretly hate Chris Pratt, right? That's the impression that I get after watching both Infinity War and Endgame. Well, justifiably so. Who's the worst Chris? He is the worst Chris. I mean, is he really the worst Chris? Well, not of every Chris on the planet, although, you know. Maybe, but of the big Chris's, yeah. Chris Messina is better than Chris Pratt. Chris Rock is better than Chris Pratt. That is true. That is true. Chris Jericho? What about Chris Jericho? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, okay. Ben, what do you think? The Russos, do they hate, do they secretly hate Chris Pratt? There's too many of the character archetype that Chris Pratt is playing already in play in the Avengers movies, and so they just kind of went, right, we just need to either play this up more than what Tony Stark is doing, or we need to shuffle them off, and they kind of did both uh, in that movie. In that, like, it's sort of similar to how Doctor Strange has barely anything to do, because it's, again, it's another character playing in the same archetypes as Robert Downey Jr. as as Tony Stark, and you just need to get them out there as quickly as possible so that Robert Downey Jr. could do his thing in those two movies. Boom! Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. Right, so the kind of 12 through 4 have all stayed exactly the same as they were last year. And number 12 is a top 5 Marvel movie, (laughs) despite what this list says. It's in the Pantheon. Uh, I don't think we need to discuss it further. That is a mark of excellence uh, that has been established across however many episodes there are now of this. Case closed, Iron Man 3. The best. Iron Man 3, number 12, directly in the middle of this list, sadly. Number 11, (laughs) Captain America the First Avenger. Number 10, Iron Man. Number 9, Spider-Man Homecoming. Number 8, Thor Ragnarok. Number 7, Captain America Winter Soldier. Number 6, Guns of the Galaxy. Number 5, Avengers Infinity War. And number 4, Captain America Civil War. Uh, But now we reach the highest new entry point on this list. At number 3, we have Avengers Endgame. And I think we should throw to Matt who is the only person who did not have this movie at number three on their list. <laughs> yeah, and I think I'm the only one who likes Infinity War better than Endgame as well, right? Yes, you are. Okay. I enjoyed watching Avengers Endgame an awful lot. It was a very emotional experience. I don't think I'll ever watch it again all the way through because it's three and a half goddamn hours. And it, it's just... I think Infinity War was a little bit more tightly focused by having Thanos as that central character. I like, I don't know, I just, I feel Endgame, I think, I think as a, as a end point to all of the movies that came before it, it's incredible. But as just a movie in a bubble, I just don't like it as much as many of the other, like, big ones, um, 
and I don't know. I guess I guess my just aversion to overly long movies. Because I mean, Infinity War isn't short either, so I can't fully pull, play that card. But yeah, just something about Infinity War. Like I think about it all the time. Like literally once a week, a scene from Infinity War just pops into my head, and that is only true for like Avengers, Black Panther, and Infinity War at this point. Um, but you know. The portal scene is very, very good. Uh, to someone who actually like really likes Endgame, want to talk about it instead. I'm not going to say I'm surprised, but I think that one of the things that really strikes me is that earlier on this episode, which you two have obviously not heard, I made the argument that the editors of this movie should have been nominated for an Academy Award because I think what they were able to do in putting this movie together, yes, three hours is a long time, and I'm an advocate. I'm definitely one of those people who believes that a lot of movies could afford to cut 20 minutes off of their runtime. This is not, for me, one of those movies because I think that the the purpose of the first hour is to let people kind of wallow in the misery of this world and i think it's really really important to have everything that is contained within that first hour and then by, by the time that you get into the last 45 minutes it's this huge battle sequence when you're trying to do all of these different things have these different reunions and these different moments and i have a really hard time cutting a lot of that stuff i think that for me the only scene that really doesn't work is the one um between Black Widow and Hawkeye, uh, the scene on Voldemir, I think that is one of the only scenes that there's just something about it. The, the pacing of that scene doesn't work. So I think that's really the only thing that doesn't necessarily totally work for me. But, I mean, to me, there's, there are some absolutely iconic moments. And a few weeks ago, we talked about this earlier i mean there are just some moments uh, that we heard from the opening night crowd that were just unbelievable and that that is an experience and i think infinity war had that to an extent with the snap but endgame has like five moments that are like that that really just popped that opening night crowd and it's everything from captain america getting the hammer to the portal scenes to some of the more emotional things as well well at the end and yeah i just i i think that this movie just really is the perfect culmination of this universe and furthermore i think that one of the things that makes me appreciate avengers endgame so much is that when i look at some of the other endings because there were a lot of major endings last year we also had the game of thrones ending we also had the rise of skywalker ending and for me the fact that avengers endgame quote-unquote stuck the landing and for me those other properties because did not do that. I think that also for me is one of the reasons that I'm so willing to, to rank this so high because ending a franchise like this is one of the hardest possible things that you can do. And for all the critiques about the Russos and the MCU, they could not have done a better job. And I think a lot of the credit, to be fair, also has to go to Marcus and McFeely who did this screenwriting and had to put all of this together. So a lot of the credit has to go to them as well. Yeah, I feel like Endgame has probably the most classic moments out of any all the out of all the MCU movies. Like if you count all the uh, awesome memorable moments out of each MCU movie, Endgame has like a longer list than all of them. Um, Infinity War probably comes up behind that, I think, a little bit. Um, but I still feel like Infinity War has better editing. I feel like that first thirty minutes in Infinity War is just incredible. Like it's the best thir- first thirty minutes. If you compare the first thirty minutes to all the MCU movies, Infinity War is just like nonstop, and it just grabs you from the balls. Right from the start, man. Right, and up to that point where it just stops. That thirty minutes, you see it goes to the Guardians of the Galaxy. That 
that 30 minute sequence of them with uh, Spider-Man on the bus and all that, I still, that's, that's a tremendous sequence, that 30 minutes right there. So I, I see why Matt is like kind of torn, not necessarily torn, but easily, he loves Infinity War more. I can see why, because of that pacing. So I see why, but uh, if you were to ask me to compare the two a year from now, I don't know who knows. I might change my opinion, but right now Endgame just has too many goddamn great moments and too many moments that inspires hope. <laughs> and like in a time like this, when Captain America grabs that goddamn hammer, man, <laughs> I felt like the world can cha- it can change the world if you can show it to the right amount of people. So yeah, but Infinity War had Carrie Coon, so <sighs> Endgame is the episode of leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> You guys are really trying to pull at my heartstrings now by making <laughs> multiple references to the leftovers. Yeah. I mean, Endgame is... I, I, I watched it three times in the cinema. It is... God. And in, <laughs> I like go to ten hours, lot, man. <laughs> okay. I, I saw... I saw it the three times in the first three days. My oh my works. god. But yeah, no, this movie it is the culmination to ten years worth of these movies. And I think... On top of like the fact that the movie get, does get to spend that first hour kind of wallowing in the pain of it all, it does the most important thing, which is it pairs the cast back and it starts to focus on the character interactions and it has so much more time for character interaction than Infinity War did. Because Infinity War, as impressive as it is, that they actually managed to make Thanos work as a character. Endgame is the movie that feels like we're going back to basics and we're going back to why you love these movies. You don't love these movies because of the villains or the final acts. You like them because of the characters and the way that the characters interact with each other. And Endgame is chock full of so many of those moments. And so many of some of those moments work so incredibly well that it does feel like a culmination and a distillation of everything that made the MCU work over the course of the 10 years. Whereas Infinity War is an impressive building block on its own, but... I don't think Infinity War would even work if Endgame didn't pay off. Like, If Endgame was a bad movie in and of itself, I don't think Infinity War would hold any of the weight that we kind of like presupposed upon it when it came out. I don't like how nothing the reversing of the snap is. Like, I don't... That there's not a shot of, like, life returning to the world. Like, it's just, they do it, and they're like, did it work? Don't know, let's go fight Thanos for 45 minutes. Like... I, th- I think that's the most interesting thing about the MCU going forward, though, is that they seem to be quite pointedly avoiding yeah. anything that would be post-snap. All the sorts, all the stories and franchises that they're dealing with are going to be off-world or dealing with multiverse stuff or introducing brand new characters. And it feels like Far From Home is the only movie that's going to have any references. And even then, those references are over and done within about 20 minutes of that movie. Mm. So I don't know how interested Marvel are in dealing with a post-snap storyline i'm not i'm not even talking about like show me the world post snap just like that is such a huge ending for infinity war like i i remember sitting there and be like are they actually going to do this they're going to end this movie on that big of a downer and they did it and then to just kind of i mean obviously we knew they'll find a way to undo this i would have liked to see that moment where they finally managed to reverse it treated with like a little bit more gravitas than it is because like Tony's death is treated as a bigger deal than bringing back however much, half the world, you know, or half the universe. And, like, you know, do you do a montage of, like, hundreds of planets? No. But, I, yeah, that that part bothers me. When you're talking specifically in relation to, like, would Infinity War still hold up if Endgame didn't stick the landing? I think it would. I think it's a, I think it's a bold 
because I don't think they are, you know, they, they're not a very bold mega franchise overall. A lot of it plays it quite safe, and I think that's one of the closest they've gotten to actually doing something bold in quite a while is having it end with Thanos wins and like he kicks the fucking ass of everyone that you know and love except Thor who gets his hit in but then too late um and then like it kind of bothers me that Thanos without the gauntlet somehow comes across as more of a badass than Thanos with it at the end of Endgame like he I feel he kicks their ass even more somehow until Danvers shows up and then even then he he outsmarts her for a second and I think the difference there, though, is that he's more intent on getting the gauntlet in Infinity War than he is in Endgame. In Infinity War, the end, the, the main point is, I just want to get the last two, few stones. Mm. Whereas in Endgame, he's like, well, these guys have taken everything that I've already achieved away from me, so I'm just going to beat the hell out of them. I no longer have need for my magical helicopter swords, which were fucking badass, <laughs> by the way. Just, you know, where, where were these before? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, like, this is... I still put it in my top ten. I'm not saying I don't like Endgame. Uh, just, yeah, that's why I can't quite bring myself to put it as high as everyone else. But, hey, I have to be... Nice. Uh, I'm the Mike Thomas of the podcast now, so I have to be different. What's fascinating to me is... What is the perception of Infinity War going to be as future generations watch it? Because I think part of what makes us unique is that we had to wait the full year to see Endgame and to see the payoff. People are, at this point, if they're watching the MCU for the first time, they're going to go watch Infinity War, and then they can immediately start Endgame. So I don't think that the impact of Infinity War long-term, and this doesn't have anything to do with our lists necessarily, but I think it's a worthwhile observation that a movie like Infinity War is probably not going to age as well as Endgame simply because that ending is not going to be as powerful because, again, we didn't we had, we had to wait the full year, but a lot of other people who watch this for the first time are not. Yeah, but people doing a big Carrie Coon watch-along of all of her career are really going to just enjoy that Infinity War is there for them, you know? So, <laughs> Matt, your love for Carrie Coon, it just it makes my heart flutter. I'm just trying to bribe you and Ben, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, Infinity War was what? I think I had it number seven, and it is in the Pantheon, just as Endgame is. Just as Iron Man 3 is. If you mention that one more time, Matt, I'm deleting you from the podcast. A near-perfect movie. <laughs> I didn't say it. Speaking of near-perfect movies, at number two, <laughs> in a change from last year, down one spot, Black Panther. Oh, this is a... Uh, I, I, I might want to fight someone now. Avengers well, is the best fine. Marvel movie. Avengers is the best Marvel Search movie. Search your feelings, you know it to be true. Um, I could not disagree more. I... Brian, where did you put Black Panther, Brian? I uh, have a number one. It's number one in my heart. It still feels like the... It can stand on its own. You know what I mean? It, it felt like when I was watching this in the theater that opening night, it did not feel like an MCU crowd. It felt like a different crowd, like a casual crowd um, that, you know, it felt like the black community finally found, like, a hero to look up to. And then they came out in droves and made it a, such a box office success. Um I mean, I I still remember people gasping when they showed the clip of uh, Black Panther's dad dying when we all saw that in Civil War. It's like all these people never saw Civil War, and they just went and saw Black Panther, and they'd never seen that before. So I was like, okay, we're dealing with a different audience, and it stands the test of time. It got nominated for Best Picture. 
Uh, I mean, it really inspired me creatively, you know, with my personal projects when I was designing the bowl of cards that year. So it really took me like a hold of me creatively inspired me and inspired like a whole generation probably. And um, I mean, come on, man. The only MCU movie to get nominated for Best Picture. Come on. That's not necessarily an argument for it being a better movie, because I could refer you to a lot of Best Picture nominees that are just terrible. And Green Even book. some of the movies that have won Best Picture are terrible. Exactly. But I think that what Matt, what Brian is is really capturing for me is that this movie, in so many ways, is not just an MCU movie, but it feels like it was a cultural event, and it feels like it is going to have a stickiness factor. I think this movie has a lot more personality than uh, some of the other Marvel movies. It's obvious that Ryan Coogler had a lot more creative say-so as far as the music, as far as some of the design work. And I think that it has one of the best villains. I think that the supporting cast, especially on the female side, it doesn't get any better to me than Black Panther. And for me, it is going to be, it's probably going to be number one in perpetuity. I will say, for me, the Avengers, I think it's, uh, the Avengers is a miracle. And the fact that Joss Whedon was able to get that movie off the ground is not something that I think should ever take away and i don't necessarily want to disparage the avengers because it was number two on my list and i still think it's it's spectacular in a lot of ways and i think we we all we can never forget the contributions that joss whedon has made to this universe because the avengers like i said is just one of those movies that works and we've seen other we see got we see we saw joss whedon try this with justice league and it didn't work and we've seen other universes start and stop because this doesn't work the avengers works and that's why it was number two but for me i think just the fact that black panther was such a a cultural event the fact that it did reach uh, a very specific audience that i think has always been underserved in the superhero movies and i think the fact that wakanda forever has taken off in a way that may become a more common greeting as we practice social distancing even but <laughs> yeah i mean i just think i don't think you could be wrong with either of these as your top two but i think for me it's it, there's never been a doubt in my mind that black panther is probably going to be the number one mcu movie for a very very long time but explain how that... Well, okay, I have multiple arguments here. One, the last third of it isn't very good. Whereas the last third of Avengers is probably the best last third of anything. Maybe Endgame has now taken that spot. But for a long time, Avengers, the best ending stretch of any Marvel movie. You both made points to the effect of, like, this wasn't just a typical MCU crowd, this wasn't just a typical MCU movie. The MCU wouldn't fucking exist if the Avengers wasn't so fucking good. Because it... it nailed it it showed you this is what it can be and they never have really quite gone well for a long time they couldn't get back to that and you know obviously hawkeye gets the the short shrift but the other five characters all incredibly well served throughout like interlocking their separate journeys bringing them together the 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 way they play off each other the the arguments on the helicarrier everybody getting a moment to shine in that final battle you talk about you know killmonger being one of the best villains loki might be the best villain in the mcu um because you know i love michael b jordan like a hell of a lot uh but for as like flashy as that performance is and as genuinely well acted in places as that performance is, I don't think that there's a problem where <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who are like, Yeah, Killmonger is right. Killmonger wanted to kill like billions of people 
and they try and land on a place where it's like, ah, you're just misunderstood. And I also feel, I, I don't want to discount any of the cultural impact whatsoever. That's all, that was genuinely joyous to see. But I don't think it gets bonus points as a movie for that personally because then Captain Marvel has to be higher up the list and Wonder Woman has to be higher up its list in DC and stuff um well it's already probably the best one of those but you know Wonder Woman has to be better regarded overall it's an incredibly good film it's got a few too many things going against it and I think Avengers is a rock solid script and is good from start to finish Ben back me up uh yeah I think what we need to do right here is break down the points of how this rolled out. So, Jerome and Brian both had Avengers at number two and Black Panther at number one. So, obviously, everyone's kind of clear on what the top two movies are. I had Avengers at number one and Black Panther at number two. Matt (laughs) had Avengers at number one and Black Panther at number three. Hey, don't just, don't just, like, kick me out the door, man. (laughs) I'm just saying it would have been a tie. It would have been a straight tie if you'd had it at number two, but you didn't. So we end up with Avengers. So we're really having we're really having the wrong argument. Oh what is Matt God. Waters number two? Ben, you think Avengers is better than Black Panther? That's the argument we're having. Don't just bail on me to <laughs> no, say well, no, Matt this, likes I, it less than all of us. This is actually a huge problem because we've actually been arguing the wrong thing for the last fifteen minutes or so. <sighs> How the hell can you think Avengers: Infinity War is better than Black Panther? Because it is. Like... I just I think that is utterly insane. Okay, the end of Black Panther is objectively terrible. Like, I mean, the end, of, the end of Black Panther is when they were, like, very clearly rushed, and we've seen all the behind-the-scenes footage of how they just, they decided to swap out the costumes at the last minute from a practical costume to a CGI costume, or they changed the design or whatever it was that they did, and it led to a lot of Act 3 problems, especially when you're seeing that kind of final fight across the mag train where the costume looks really bad, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, I don't think it's enough to impact the movie. Again, I think Black Panther is very clearly the second best movie that they've done. And the only reason I've got Avengers higher is because my little comic book loving heart never thought that I would get to see that on a screen and it's paved the way for so much. And Black Panther is a cultural achievement and a movie that I would probably like, I think that it, I think both of them would have deserved best picture nominations in their year, but I would probably say that Black Panther was closer to being my winner for the year that it came out rather than 2012. Yes, I, I would also agree that I think Avengers definitely should have been nominated for, for Best Picture. And I don't know. I mean, I think there are parts of Infinity War that are definitely kind of a slog as well. And, I you know, the snap is great, but I think the final battle in Avengers Infinity War is just as generic in a lot of ways as the, as the final battle in Black Panther. And I think Black Panther... The, the moment where Killmonger dies, I mean that I think that his final quote just has really stuck with me, and I think is is a great ending for that particular character. And I think that it it doesn't redeem the entire third act, but I certainly think that having that ending for that character, I think makes the makes it feel a little bit more worthwhile at at the very least. So I don't know. I'm a little I'm a little disappointed in Matt right now. I don't like the rhinos. I don't like the mag train. I don't like. So it's all coming out now. 
what? I, it's a bad... Look, people give Iron Man 3 all this shit for having this terrible third act. People say Winter Soldier's really good until it's not at the end, and they say Marvel can't do third acts. We can't just pretend Black Panther has a really good third act. Like, it has an incredible first two acts. And I like... The... I will... I will the, diff- the difference is, though, is I think Black Panther nails the emotional stuff in sure. his third act, whilst, yeah. whilst the superheroic that... stuff is bad, and... Matt and I were having this conversation the other day where I am definitely someone who watches movies and is more drawn to character and emotion, whereas Matt is someone who is far more interested in plot and narrative. Yes. And so this is why I always agree with Ben more. Okay, thank you. Now I understand it. I'm a storyteller, Jerome. I am a storyteller. So Ben and I really do have the same movie taste. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, just, you know, I, Ben has done a wonderful job of making that sound like, you know, he is right and I am wrong. I would have to <laughs> neither of us are right or wrong. Uh, just d- different, you know, I am in it for tell me a story, not just here are ten people, let's learn some things about them. Can I Can I, Can I? I just say that I yes. think Ben Phillips would make a great politician because he managed to transfer the debate from Black Panther and Avengers into just continuing to pile on you. A so Ben, you are doing a fantastic... Ben, you are doing a fantastic job as host. Oh, just you wait until we get to the question about how I rank people's film opinions, Matt. I don't like this either. Brian, we positioned a... him in this. Oh, sorry. Go on. <laughs> do you have anything to add before we move on? Because Brian's been Brian is always very quiet and patient. So I think I don't know. I've been hearing both sides of the argument. I mean, listen, five years ago, yeah, I would have told you Avengers is the number one movie. I don't know. Maybe five years from now, it'll change for me again because, I mean, we all, go through, we all go through these emotional you know, changes in our lives or whatever. Right now, in my life, I, I, I'm going with Black Panther. Even though Avengers does have that awesome moment with that old man saying, uh, you know, I'm not going to bow down to you because I used to bow down to someone else before, blah, 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 That when he was referring to Hitler. That moment, every time I see that in Avengers 1, I stand up and go, fuck yeah, man. Don't you dare fucking bow down to Loki. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I still get that moment. I still get that really cool, hopeful moment. So I give it that. Uh, so I'll say this. We have had some disagreements, but let's face it. All four of us agree that Nazis should be punched in the face, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. see? See, I'm bringing the room together again. Thanks. Uh, I, I'm just going to say one final point on Avengers in that I think the the most impressive thing it does is – Across the five movies that come before it, there is some spotty characterization of an awful lot of that cast. And realistically, I think that the only people that are down pat by the time we get into Avengers are Iron Man and Captain America from their solo movies. But you come into Avengers and it manages to make Black Widow interesting. It manages to recast and make Hulk more interesting than he is in either of his two solo movies. Hawkeye is Hawkeye. (laughs) And... And Thor gets like whilst Thor wasn't whilst Thor is a different characterization to what he is in the Thor movie, they still nail the brotherly dynamic between the two of them and kind of prove that a more funny a more funny Thor is the way to kind of go with the character, even if it is leaning into the more dramatic side of the character. Those two up on the mountain, man. Every time for me. So right. that, that's that's it. That is our that is our master list. Yeah, it, it, we've had three number ones across the years. We've had, <laughs> Civil War in 2018, Black Panther in 2019, and in this, the year of our Lord 2020, Avengers has come out on top. So, Can I just say, it is pretty amazing. Here's a fun fact. Robert Redford's last appearance in Avengers Endgame is the first time that he ever returned to play a character from another movie. Fun fact Obviously doesn't like sequels. He's got he too much like integrity sequels. to do a sequel. Correct. Ben, anything else to say about 
the list or are we ready to move on? Uh, no, and there's nothing else really to add. I think we've covered all the interesting parts of what's gone up, what's gone down. Uh, I don't want to name and shame anyone else for their opinions. We've <sighs> done the big ones. <laughs> we really attacked Matt at the end there, and I think uh, I, I got, I got, I got all, everything I needed to say in. It's it's fine. We didn't do infinite. Uh, we didn't do Iron Man three litigation this time. So where's my nid? It's in the Pantheon. So oh, that was my last one. Oh. You know what's really what's really amazing about this is that I was a bit concerned at the beginning because you were attacking me. Brian is so quiet that he never got attacked, and Ben doing the hosting didn't get attacked. So I think those two have played it well, and Matt and I are just fools. I am the safest person to attack. I think is just the 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 harsh truth of it all. Because uh, none of you know each other as well as you all know me, so there you go. <laughs> all right, so I have some burning questions. Three of these are very specific to certain people, and then I have two questions that are for everyone. Matt, I have a mystery question for you. I Ben and Brian know what it is. So Matt, your mystery question is the following: And I like it. Did Captain America? Did Captain America and Peggy? Did they make coitus the night that Captain America returned? Yes, done. There you That's go. it? Yeah. You're not going to elaborate? I don't... What do you want me to say? Yeah, probably. <laughs> like, <laughs> Is it romantic? I, no, Steve is, is a big dommy dom, and he keeps all of the romance out of the bedroom. He just likes to get his fuck on when he is getting down to business. Um, no, but he's definitely a virgin. He is definitely a virgin. <laughs> um, yeah. I knew Ben would have a better answer for <sighs> yeah, right. Captain America came in three and a half seconds because he has never known the touch of a woman before. Steve is a terrible lover, uh, and as much as Tony is an awful person, you know he'd be better at sex. So there. Are you happy, Jerome? Do we do I we am... think that the dance that they have in the window is this the first time that he's back, or do we think that's just he's been back for a while at that point? I thought they were at least together for a while at that point. I thought they were married at that point, and that, that's what they were trying to say. And that was like their first dance or something like that. I but. think he walked through the door and they had the dance without really needing to say anything because like, that was the last thing that, you know, they spoke about. Uh, well, no, because, I mean, he did, see, he did see her on her deathbed, as it were. But, you know, that was the big thing. Like, I'm saving that dance for you. And I think I could see that being like a no words necessary, let's have the dance. As opposed to a metaphor for sex. Well, I feel in that scene, he has already come in his pants, so. <laughs> yes, I, I, I agree with most of what Matt said. I'm not <laughs> going to agree or disagree with that final statement. This is, look, I gave you an answer, and then you weren't happy with it. <laughs> and this is what happens. Well, Matt, this is what, this is what happens when you decide to take your shots and make your, <laughs> iron, your little Iron Man 3 comments. This is what you get. It's a great movie. Because Ben doesn't say anything about Iron Man 3 generally. He's just, he's generally very well behaved about this. It's hey. always you, Matt, hey. always starting shit. Ben likes Iron Man 3 more than I do. <laughs> I understand that, but he doesn't he doesn't rub it in our faces. <sighs> okay. I'm just quicker, All I right. think is the thing. Brian, this is this question is for you. Chris Hemsworth got a reported eighty million dollar paycheck from Avengers Endgame. What did he do with it? Okay, well, I guess since he figured Endgame, he didn't have to be in shape necessarily. He probably bought a shit ton of Baskin Robbins, and knowing that the pints are like two for ten dollars, he probably got like what a hundred pints, something like that. Uh, and then what? Probably bought a little island. 
probably bought a couple new cars. This was, what, 2017, 2018, probably got a new iPhone. And, uh, I don't know, maybe he bought some stock. Let's say he bought stock in, I don't know, WWE or something like that because uh, he was in the talks for that deal with the Hulk Hogan movie. So maybe he also bought a DVD of the best of Hulk Hogan to study up for his upcoming role as Hulk Hogan while eating a bunch of uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream. The funny thing is that Todd Phillips is the director of that Hulk Hogan movie. I did not want to mention that, but uh, yeah, we'll see if that movie actually happens, brother. I can't wait to litigate Todd Phillips all over again when that movie comes out. Boy, it'll be, uh, I don't know. We'll see if it actually happens at this point with any... God, I don't know. Everything is to be determined right now. So there you go. All right. So this is for everyone. And we're just going to go. We're going to go Ben, Matt, and Brian in order for this next question. What is one MCU character you would have liked to have seen or referenced return in Endgame? I mean, obviously, the character I would have wanted to see return in Avengers Endgame would have been Trevor Slattery. (laughs) What are we doing, Ben? What are we doing? Oh, I mean, good. Wow. He saw into the future and he knew to keep quiet for this ultimate (laughs) moment. (laughs) Ben, is that your final answer? That is my final answer. Go ahead, Matt. Justin Hammer, Sam Rockwell, would be someone I'd like to see come back. Why are we referencing Iron Man 2 and Iron Man 3? Wow, well, you know. Iron Man 3 is so good. I mean, I, mean, I understand just... Iron Man 3, but we've all agreed that Iron Man 2 is objectively the worst movie in the MCU. Yes, but and Sam yes. Rockwell is... Yeah, Sam Rockwell is giving the best performance in one of the bad movies. I think Sam Rockwell is the only person who we actually gave an all-Marvel performance to yeah. from any of the bottom five movies on our list. You're expecting Sam Rockwell to take a break from playing racists to return to the MCU. I expect him to dance across the funeral. Like, you know the scene where he comes out at the at the Hammer Tech convention or whatever, and he's doing his little dance? I want him to do that across Tony's vigil at the end, because, you know, he hates him and he's dead now, so, yeah. Well, you've, you two have terribly disappointed me, but I know Brian <laughs> is not going to disappoint me. Uh, I'm going with Betty, because I felt like Liv Tyler coming back would have just blew my fucking mind if they already brought William Hurt back. In Civil War, like, bring Betty back, and then show us that journey of her helping... Ben, or, uh, her helping the Hulk turns into uh, Smart Hulk. That was the journey that I wanted to see because I felt like she should have been there to help him on his journey in the end. But we never got that because they just rushed it. In all seriousness, I did say to Ben beforehand, would that actually mean anything now? Like, I agree, it would be like, oh wow. But does that hold any cash, uh, cachet with anyone at this point? Like, if Liv Tyler shows up, do people go, huh? Oh yeah, she was in Hulk, wasn't she? I'd I'd be intrigued to see whether or not they flip who She-Hulk is, and they see whether or not they can call Liv Tyler back for that role. Oh, good. Like, because obviously obviously Liv Tyler, or not Liv Tyler, obviously Betty is Red She-Hulk, and they could quite easily do that, and there are rumblings about a Hulk-like character in Black Widow, but we'll see whether or not they're going in that angle. So I I, I appreciate that Brian's answer was actually good, so I'm going to give him uh, some points on that. I am disappointed. I don't know if we necessarily could have gotten a cameo from this person, but I think not referencing Phil Coulson in Avengers Endgame somehow feels wrong because he was the person, of course, that originally brought 
the Avengers together in the 2012 movie, and he does have a, a smallish role in Captain Marvel, so I do appreciate that, but I wish there was some way, because he was such a huge part of the early part of the MCU in bringing and connecting these movies together when Nick Fury wasn't around. We definitely got a lot of Phil Coulson, so I'm disappointed almost more that we didn't get some sort of a reference to him, even I, I if we think, didn't necessarily get a Kenya. I think it's more because S.H.I.E.L.D. takes such a backseat to the plot in that movie in that like samuel jackson's belly in it despite being the person who literally kind of forges the universe and the other issue is that phil corson is dead dead twice and has the tv show stink all over him which you go to tv they, you're dead to them yeah like the, the, apart from obviously the one cameo from agent carter there there is no interest from kevin Feige in taking anyone from jeff Loeb's wheelhouse really you know, now we've got Disney Plus over here, I might finally check out The Inhumans. No. <laughs> Why would you do that to yourself? I've got to know, you know? Like, can it be as bad as people say? God, you're going to like it because it's from the same fucking guy as Iron Fist, aren't you? No comment. Wait, you like Iron Fist? Oh, you ah! know I like Iron Fist. No, I, re- I actually didn't know this. <sighs> Come on, move on. I think we've lost Ben. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, I keep on throwing stuff at Matt. Ben and I need to hang out more so we can learn all of my bad movie opinions. Oh. And, and also, I will say, I think Brian and I as co-hosts, we clearly like each other more, because I have not thrown Brian under the bus yet. And Brian has not thrown me under the bus. I, I try to play neutral, you know, when it comes to wars, uh, banter wars, any any kind of war of the word, gun, any kind of war. Fair enough. All right, so this is a question. I want real answers from everyone. We're going to go in reverse order, Brian, Matt, and Ben. Who is one director, writer, producer, or actor who has not yet participated in the MCU that you would like to see participate in the MCU? I'll go with uh, J.A. Boyana. He directed Jurassic uh, World 2, Fallen Kingdom, and that movie sucks ass. But he made it look so good as a director. Like I was like, whoa. This is, like, a great director. He directed another monster movie, I think. I forget the title, but uh, he's actually directing two episodes of the Lord of the Rings series right now. So he's definitely got that eye for, like, maybe something kind of, like, on the sci-fi end of the MCU, the cosmic world. If you want to give him a project like that, maybe a Silver Surfer type thing or something. Because he's definitely got the eye for, like, stunning visuals. And so I'm all aboard for him. I mean, I feel somebody is going to come screaming into my brain in an hour that I forgot about and I'll feel bad about it. I feel at some point one of these is going to get Leo. Uh, I don't actually really give a shit, though. Justin Theroux would be fun. But my big one would be they have tried to cast Emily Blunt in about six different roles and (laughs) she keeps passing. And I know a lot of people have kind of turned on John Krasinski. I feel there's been like a backlash against him in the last few years, probably because he's a big CAA-loving weirdo. Um, But I still would be down to see those two playing Reed and Sue Storm uh, as a married couple in the MCU. I think that'd be fun. And But, you know, if I have to have him to get her, I'm down with it. So I think that is also a really good pick. I really, I think Emily Blunt would be perfect as somebody in the MCU. She just needs... She needs the right role, and they need to they need to beef up their female roles anyway. And I think just having Emily Blunt would be good. So I think that's a good choice as well. And Ben, if it hadn't already happened after seeing both Midsummer and Little Women, I would have said Florence Pugh. But obviously, we're getting her almost immediately. Black Widow. So 
that's already like my one dream actress already in this franchise. I'm going to stick in a little women wheelhouse and go Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet are both two actors who I think whilst they do prestigious stuff, I think they would have room in their schedules to kind of do this kind of thing. And obviously both the Greta Gerwig films that they're in, they've got such insane chemistry that I don't know who you would position them as, but it would be great to see them as maybe someone who've got like romantic tension. And I'm trying to think if there's any couples that I can think of off the top of my head that they would be really interesting to play. Like I don't want to put them as uh, Mr. and Mrs. Fantastic, but someone of a similar kind of vibe to that. You know who we haven't seen played enough? Cyclops and Jean Grey. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Well, we need them to actually be played well. Yeah. So perhaps that would be a, an hey. opportunity for these two characters to actually be played well. You apologize to James Marston. Sersha <laughs> Ronan probably was better as Emma Frost. I, I don't have anything against James Marston or Fan King Jensen necessarily. It's just they, they are so underserved by the writing of the films. That's where my critique yeah, is. Yeah, I, I, I'm only being half serious. That's fine. How about you, Jerome? Who do you want? Uh, so one of the things that, you know, I referenced this, and, and, and we, obvi- we obviously have joked about the MCU, and we talked about Captain America having sex, but I think that one of the things that I would love to see from the MCU moving forward is, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to all laugh, but it's true, these movies need to get hornier. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I'm saying this is because it just feels like I mean, I don't think that James Cameron was correct, but I would really like to see some romantic tension in some of these you talked about with Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet. And there's been a critical revisiting of the movie The Mask of Zorro on Netflix by a lot of people in the film Twitter universe. And the thing that, despite some of the more problematic elements of that movie, the thing that that movie has going for it, it is two beautiful people who literally just seemingly want close off of each other and i think that that is something that's hard to do in a pg-13 movie but i would love to see them try to get into that place and the person that i think would be able to do that in a really good way based on some of her prior work and based on the fact that i think a movie uh, a tv show like killing eve has kind of gotten into that sexy space with spies i think you could do it with superheroes Phoebe Waller-Bridge is my pick. How does the American, and not the two Brits, pick Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Keep her out franchises. I want another TV show. There you go. I mean, I, would lo- I don't necessarily want to see her as a director. I would like to see her as a writer, though, on an MCU project. And I know that she has something to do, at least with the next James Bond movie, which is very exciting because those movies desperately need female writing and so yeah but i would like to see her at least write an mcu movie at some point i do like the idea of her becoming this like horny consultant that just comes in and just adds some sex to every script you know and then just flits off to the next one you know? uh, i don't I mean, understand how they I mean. lost it after casino royale they had the horniness there they and did. then they lost it they did. They, they because Eva Green was not as involved. I think that's why. Yeah. All right, so Ben, this is your opportunity to throw us all under the bus because uh, you are going to rank some bad movie opinions from real world contributors. And Matt and I were trying to rack our brains, and we couldn't think of any for you and Kevin Ford. Also, we could not think of any for him. Because Kevin stays in his adventure time lost, breaking bad Veronica Mars corner doesn't really talk a lot about movies. But Ben, from bad to worst, and you've had some time to think about this, I want you to rank these movie opinions. 
Mike Thomas's like of Dark Phoenix, Matt Waters' dislike of Mission Impossible Fallout, Brian's <sighs> love for Rise of Skywalker, and my hatred of Iron Man 3. Right. Can I, so, can I uh, just very quickly... I don't dislike Mission Impossible Fallout. I just don't love it. Carry on. Okay. So at number at number four, I'm going to oh put... God. At number four, I'm going to put... So the least bad opinion is Brian's love for Rise of Skywalker. And whilst I think that that movie is terrible to my dearly beloved Last Jedi, I am not going to begrudge anyone for loving something, uh, even if I don't. Uh, I think in comparison to the other bad movie opinion for a, a movie that shouldn't be liked is the fact that the cast for Rise of Skywalker are kind of switched on. Like, Adam Driver is still giving a good performance in that movie. It's just everything about that movie that kind of fails is all on J.J. Abrams and all based around the fact that they had such a short period of time to do pre-production on it and just didn't come up with a good idea. And I really wish they'd just done the Trevorrow script rather than whatever they decided to do the rewrite on. Uh... No, number three, again, I'm not going to begrudge anyone for liking something. Mike's like for Dark, Dark Phoenix. Come on! <laughs> like, it's a bad movie. No one switched on. The speech that that, Je- that that Jennifer Lawrence gives where she calls them the ex-women is cringeworthy bad. Uh, the one swear word they get through in the movie is possibly the worst film moment of the year last year. But <laughs> again, again, it's like... I'm not going to begrudge someone for having a positive opinion on something because this world needs more love and less shitting on bad movies. Uh, Number two, and purely because we've done an entire podcast on this, Matt's dislike of Mission Impossible Fallout. I I got to hear his opinions on all the movies and I knew going into Fallout that he wasn't going to like it. And so it kind of softened the blow. Like, it makes sense in my head. Like, I've had all his thought logic played out to me over the course of many, many hours (laughs) of podcasting together. So I can't be mad at that opinion. And many Uh, follow-up hours. And many follow-up hours. And yeah, the worst opinion is The Hatred of Iron Man 3 because Iron Man 3 is a a beautiful crystal baby of a movie that uh, is a movie that I base... Like my my opinions on other people's movie taste. If you dislike both Last Jedi and Iron Man three, we're probably not going to agree that often on movies. Also, I hear it's in the superhero pantheon. So. <laughs> You've just been saving this up for this one moment right at the end of the podcast. Oh, Ben's so much more polite about him. <laughs> <laughs> he was, and now and now he sucks. You gave him too much power, and look what he did with it. I. This is what happens when you give Doctor Manhattan too much power. Yeah. We see. We see what happens. Yeah. Let's just let, come on, man. Dark Phoenix is so bad. Yeah. Like I had to watch it again. Dark <laughs> Phoenix is bad, but again, I'm not going to begrudge people for liking things. Oh, I will begrudge people for disliking things. <laughs> for the record, I do not dislike Iron Man three. I'm neutral. I don't think it's spectacular. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's just right in the middle, and uh, yeah, at least we got the kid from Iron Man 3 coming back at the end of Endgame, so no one saw that coming, right? God, what a bizarre, to have no reference to who that person is, and have him age up, <laughs> like, a seven years. I think it's, actually, it's perfect that they just had him there amidst all of these super mega stars, and he's just there. Yeah. I think it's actually perfect that way. It should have been Travis Lafferty, you're right. <laughs> at the funeral. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ben, I'm taking my podcast back because 
you clearly don't know how to be responsible with it. So uh, before we go, I'm going to uh, give a series of thank yous. I first, uh, as we are ending this season of the superhero pantheon, we will come back and do a season three at some point when there are more superhero movies to talk about and we are probably going to get into the tv realm with Watchmen, as ben and matt are currently doing with their podcast series that's currently going on but a few thank yous i first want to thank chris uh, gsd and pw ponderings for hosting this podcast in the first year i of course want to thank matt waters in all seriousness uh, for bringing pantheon into the real world and Matt, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little mushy on you. So Matt yeah. and I started with PW Ponderings a few years ago, and the fact that we are still doing podcasting and the fact that we are still working together in some form or fashion is uh, it's pretty amazing to me uh, because we have never actually met each other and yet we're still friends, and that's that's pretty weird to me. And I uh, I really appreciate you, despite what I've said for the past 90 minutes. I, uh, I appreciate what you've done for us, and I appreciate you staying up late and doing this podcast with us. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, it has been a very, very long time, uh, and I didn't think way back when I shot you that email saying, yeah, I'd love to talk about this, um, that we'd be here in 2020, uh, closing out the whole MCU. Like, did the MCU even exist when we first started Podcast. I mean, it was just getting started, but I mean, Matt and I really don't even watch wrestling at this point. I mean, that's the funny yeah. thing about this is that Matt hosted a, a Ring of Honor podcast for, for so many years, and I did a lot of hosting as well. And now, now Matt and I are basically kind of tuned out of wrestling in, in 2020, but yeah. we're still reading comic books and we're seeing these superhero movies. Yes, we are forever. This is our curse, and uh, we will take it with us forever. Uh, we're, we're just to do this forever, I think, Matt. Nothing ever ends, Jerome. Exactly. Uh, I, of course, also want to thank Matt and Ben for doing the crossovers. Ben, it has been great to get to know you more and your wonderful movie tastes over the last year. Despite the heel turn at the end, Ben, I do appreciate you also staying up late and doing the Watchmen podcast uh, back in December. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you and Matt talk about uh, with that series because... Why does it always end up where Ben has seen something before Matt? That just seems it seems weird. Why can't you do a podcast where Matt has seen something that Ben hasn't? Because Ben has seen everything. (laughs) And also, Matt doesn't want to do it any other way now because there is a fantastic moment coming up on the Watchmen podcast. You fucking asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Ben is very good at just not at all hiding how giddy he is at knowing something I don't. Uh, when we're talking about stuff. Uh, we kind of did it. You hadn't seen some of uh, Secret Agent Men's films. so uh, I hadn't seen the boards. I, yeah. was, I was born blind. Yeah, well, I, I think it works better this way around. Yes, nothing ever ends. It's going to be a fun time, everyone. Absolutely. We also, of course, want to thank the listeners for engaging with us on whether it was PW Ponderings or whether it was on The Real World. We want to thank you and appreciate your continued support. And, of course, I need to thank Brian. Brian is the person that has done this with me for the last two and a half years. When I suggested, he agreed to it, and we have been doing this, and we have reviewed so many superhero movies, some good, some very bad, but we have done this. And it's it's incredible to me that when we recorded our first episode, 
it didn't record, so we had to redo the very first episode of this podcast, and we've had to redo a couple since then, and it's always very annoying, despite the fact that I've been podcasting for 10 years, it still fucks up. But Brian, I, I do want to thank you for doing this, and I know that you've gone through a lot these last couple of years, as, of I, as have I, but uh, I appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, man. I mean, God, I mean, I remember emailing you guys, well, I think it's 2012, about having more PWG discussions on PW Ponderings and all these years later, man. I remember meeting you and Chris that night after the PWG show and having the first night we met doing the podcast with you guys, and we've been doing podcasts ever since then. I remember even after, like, the newscast we used to do, we used to go off there and just talk about all the random stuff, and then we did this random podcast about Batman versus Superman when it first came out that went into the abyss that Chris, I guess, forgot to release, and I guess that was kind of the basis of what superhero pantheon would become so i mean we were kind of just doing it off the fly you know normally and naturally just you know our natural geek talk conversations that kind of blossom into the podcast so it felt like a natural thing and it was cool to go back and watch all these old movies again and some some of them broke me i mean goddamn fucking catwoman broke me and dark <laughs> broke me ghost Rider broke me but then again you find these different movies that you never thought you would love like the shadow you know what i mean something like that you know so much appreciated, and uh, we're going to move on forward. You know, we're going to kind of break away from the superhero movies a little bit. I know Jerome has some information for you guys about some upcoming trilogies we're going to review this summer, and uh, I'm planning some unique old-school movies that are going to make you feel like you went to Blockbuster in the 90s when the with some of the choices I'm making for the fall and winter. So there you go. So we are going to try and avoid any crossover with other podcasts and reviewing other movies and uh, that's what we're going to be efforting to do. But we are going to continue to talk about movies and we're going to have some different themes. But we are going to be revisit revisiting three trilogies this summer. Next week, uh, in this very space, you are going to be hearing our review of the first half of season five of Breaking Bad, the podcast with Kevin Ford and I. That is another two-hour podcast that you will enjoy and listen to. We are, we are taking the next week off so that you can catch up on this month of a podcast as well as Breaking Bad. But in the month of June, we have the time. We are going to revisit the Lord of the Rings trilogy and we are going to be watching the extended editions of those. So that's going to be very exciting. That's what we're doing in June. In the month of July, we are going to be reviewing and revisiting the modern Planet of the Apes trilogy. Uh, two of those movies done by Matt Reeves. So that'll be very exciting. And then in August, so we have not done a lot of comedy. If you look at the real world, there there's a few comedies that have been discussed. But that's something I want to get more into. And in the month of August, we are going to go old school. And we are going to review the Beverly Hills Cop trilogy because we both love Eddie Murphy, and this will be a chance to gush about Eddie Murphy, at least for the first two movies. And then the third one exists. So that is our plan for the summer. And plus Kevin Ford and I breaking bad. So I think that's pretty much it. Thank everyone one more time. Uh, for Matt Waters, Ben Phillips, Brian DeBrain, and myself, Jerome Cusan, thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again in two weeks. Not about superheroes. I'm Matt Reeves in the Pantheon. Hashtag release the Snyder Cut. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Part of the journey is the end. Question mark?